In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Listening to Dark Matters Radio. Radio that doesn't matter with a host who's dark. See what I've done there? Hey, you freaking humps. Welcome back to Dark Matters Radio with your host, me, John Ecker. You know, I did a little investigation on that Jeremy Vaney over at the Paratopia. I couldn't find any dirt on him. See, I haven't liked the guy since he first started working at UFO Magazine. He once wrote a column wherein he said that George Bush stole an election, and I'm a right-wing nutter, so that sent me off. You know, most people in ufology know better than to set me off because I own a giant gun collection, and like I said, I'm a nutter. <laughs> but not Vaney. He should have learned more about Don Necker's likes and dislikes before he wrote a column, but he didn't, and I've had it out for him ever since. <laughs> Finally decided to do something about it and look into his background. It's hard not to choke on words. Anyway, what I found was astonishing. I couldn't dig up any dirt on him. You know what, Don? You're not even worth finishing this skit. Never mind. Paratopia, please welcome our very special guest. You know him, you love him. He is the one and only Nick Redfern. Nick, thank you for coming on our show and without any agenda. <laughs> yeah, I'm a man without an agenda tonight. Just whatever you want to talk about is fine. So. <laughs> cool. Well, let's um, let, let's go all over the place with this. Let's go broad with it. But first, let's we might as well start off. You do have a new book, right? Contactees, mm. A History of Alien-Human Interaction. That's your mm. latest offering, correct? That's correct, yeah. Why don't you uh, describe this for us um, in a way that uh, Jeff and I, as you know, are, or probably know, I think know, are experiencers, mm-hmm. and we don't give the contactee subject much credence. What is in there for us that we're going to go, yeah, we should take another look at this? Well, basically, I mean, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote the book was purely for this particular reason, that many people within today's ufology i found are highly skeptical of the subject. What I also found was that, and I'm not obviously, you know, saying this about you guys, but what I have found is that certain, speaking to certain people within the field, their views on the subject aren't born out of doing their own investigations. It's born out by reading the conclusions of somebody else. 
In other words, it's not going direct to the contactees, the ones that are still living, but it's reading somebody's book that's either pro or con with respect to the, the contactee mystery. So what I did with the book was, you know, obviously bearing in mind that the, the contactee mystery, as we define it, sort of really kicked off in the late 40s, early 50s. Unfortunately, just through the passage of time, there aren't really many of those guys and women left, you know, from that particular era. So the number that I was able to personally interview was quite small. But what I did was to go back and look at the original accounts and summarize the accounts and, you know, but, but not just go over old ground and, you know, just repeat verbatim from X number of books, but to supplement each chapter with quotes and interviews. I did extensive interviews with people like Greg Bishop, Colin Bennett, Matt Tonis, uh, Micah Hanks, to get their views on the, on the relevant people in each chapter. Then what I did was to presents a variety of theories because you know again with the contactee movement many people view it in very black and white tones i guess you know you have the people who are the the literal disciples of the contactees who view everything they said and still say as literal 100 percent gospel and then you have the people who say it was all hoaxes what i found is that no pun intended it's kind of a little bit of a, a gray area so to speak in the sense that, um, you know, the more I dug into it, I found there was evidence that some of the experiences seemed to take place in distinctly altered states. Um, there's evidence, for example, in some cases where it sounds like some of the contactees are almost dosed with LSD, where there's intelligence agency links to the subject. There's also ties with a number of the contactees to the Communist Party in the U.S., um, uh, particularly contactees who were trying to promote the idea that the so-called Space Brothers had a communist or socialist-type government. Um, you have other stories about some of the contactees having links with, with high-level government officials. Um, so, in other words, you have a whole range of theories that actually take the subject far beyond the black and white of hoax or reality, and that was one of the sort of overriding reasons for me that led me to write the book, that, it, that these characters were sort of so fascinating and weird and had, like George Van Tassel, you know, not to get off at too much of a tangent, but he was good friends with none other than Howard Hughes. And actually, when he worked at Howard Hughes's, Hughes' aircraft, he helped the FBI in a number of espionage investigations where the Soviets were trying to penetrate Hughes' aircraft company. So, you know, you have all these sort of weird tangents going on, and it was such a fascinating movement that a lot of people you know, think of it as just as literal and as simplistic as, oh, this guy claimed to have met long-haired aliens from Venus, and he's a liar. You know, that, that's how many people view the subject. Did any of them ever come forward and say that they did work for a government agent or that they felt they were drugged by some sort of government agency? Yes. Um, Howard Menger came forward to say that his, he came forward a number of years after his story was first published. He was one of the more famous contactees of the 50s, and he claimed further down the line, that his story was actually, um, that it was a genuine event, but that the Pentagon had kind of subtly promoted him to publish it to test the public reaction to the idea of face-to-face -face alien human encounters. Now, of course, people have said, well, that's a great way to market your book, you know, which you could argue. Um, but he didn't do this at the time the book came out. You know, this was, this was years later. Now, as far as drugs are concerned, one of the more interesting ones that I relate in the book concerns a man named Orfeo Angelucci, who's one of the more 
I suppose, forgotten contactees of the 50s, but he was a very big sort of prime mover in the early to sort of 56, 57 period and spoke a lot at George Van Tassel's giant rock conferences in, in California. He, in one of his books, actually talks about going to a restaurant to meet a, a guy, a, a normal human guy, um, who claimed contactee experiences very similar to his, which, again, were like of the classic space brother, long-haired, blonde variety. And he said that when he went to this restaurant, that the guy said, well, before I can tell you what happened to me, you have to drink this drink, and he popped a pill in the drink. Now, you know, of course, if you're going to meet a stranger in a restaurant, they insist on popping a pill in your drink, and then you go ahead and drink it. That's probably a kind of risky thing to do. Mm. But he said he did it, and he said within about 30 minutes, he began to feel strange. This was like 1953, and he said the room seemed to take on strange colors. He said even the furniture seemed to have some sort of ethereal meaning to it, and his mind was filled with vivid ideas and sparkling colors. And it sounded like he'd been put on like an LSD trip. What's interesting is that in his book, he talks about how at one table across from him, there were two um, military guys in uniform staring at him very intently, almost as if gauging the situation and being on hand in case, you know, this the trip went wrong. And what's interesting is that when Angelucci was under this, I guess, drug-induced spell, if that's what it was, his supposed informant was far more interested in getting information out of Angelucci about his experiences than he was about imparting details of his own experiences. Now, bear in mind the time frame, as I mentioned in the book, this is right after the CIA was dabbling in you know, LSD and mind manipulation, which, uh, to one extent at least, ended in tragedy with the death of a man named Frank Olson, famous story involving a CIA operative who was dosed with LSD against his knowledge and actually went paranoid and jumped out of a window to his death or was pushed, mm -hmm. depending on, you know, whose version of events you accept as real. But the time frame, you know, ties very closely with when the CIA was doing all this mind control operation. And, and Angelucci's story does sound like a classic MK Ultra mind trip, you know, to to ascertain, you know, the effects on the human mind and also getting information out of Angelucci about his experiences or claimed experiences. So what do you do with something like the um, the story that Adamski yeah. was just a, uh, a bootlegger who mm -hmm. lost his business and mm -hmm. took up being a contactee for money? Well, you know, I mean, that could well be the case. But again, when you look at his story, like so many of the others, what at first glance seems to be an issue that's black and white isn't so black and white after all. For example, you know, everybody talks about his bootlegging, etc. Um, but on the other hand, you know, in the 1930s, he had this organization called the Royal Order of Tibet, which was set up in, in L.A., and which was very much like a mind-body-spirit alternative commune lifestyle situation. Um, now, of course, you know, that wouldn't sort of get anybody to turn their head and look twice today. You know, nobody would think about it. Back in 1930s L.A., it was something that was a talking point. It was actually the, you know, the subject of a number of high-profile um, newspaper articles in, for example, the L.A. Times. You know, everybody thinks of Adamski kicking off in the 50s with publicity. He was actually getting large publicity within L.A. because of this alternative commune-type group 20 years before his UFO experiences. So in other words, whether he had real UFO experiences or not, he was someone well-versed in the, 
I guess, the realm of alternative lifestyles and, and ideas long, long before. Now, of course, people also point out that in 1949, he wrote a sci-fi novel called uh, Pioneers from Space, which actually paralleled quite closely a lot of his um, later UFO experiences that he claimed were real. So, you know, that is a matter of controversy. You know, and, I, and I don't shy away from any of this in the book. I, you know, I try and present the good, the bad, and the ugly, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have the fact that, you know, if you look at his FBI file, which I got, which is an extensive FBI file, you know, they watched him very, very closely because he was actually traveling around and giving lectures. And when people would specifically ask him what sort of government the aliens had, he openly said they're communists and communism is the way of the future. Now, of course, for the FBI, I think, and as I say in the book, I think the nature of his alleged UFO experiences was secondary. And the fact that here was this man whose first book, Flying Sources Have Landed, in its first printing, sold 125,000 copies, and he's telling his readers and his audience at lectures that communism is the way of the future and the space aliens are communists. You know, you have to wonder, because a number of the contactees were tied to the Communist Party, if there's more going on. Um, And that's what I mean about it not being quite so straightforward. The idea that, you know, if he's just speaking to one man and his dog, nobody cares. When you find the FBI actually traveling around and sitting in the audience, hanging on this man's every word and preparing in-depth reports from none other than J. Edgar Hoover, you have to wonder if there was something that prompted them to take such a consideration, whether they believed it or not, that, you know, they realized this was a movement and these were significant players, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, when you when you look at um, sort of government involvement back then, and then you see uh, through Greg Bishop's work how it evolved um, into, uh, well, what, killing Paul Benowitz, getting him to kill himself, uh, yeah. that, that sort of thing, um, and the way that they infiltrated um, mm-hmm. to see who was interested in our technology, if the communists yeah. were, and all that sort of stuff. Where do you see it having gone from there uh, in terms of just government involvement in ufology? Do you think it's evolved further? Or do you think it's gone away? Do you think it's still there? Well, you know, I th- what I find particularly interesting is that there was not one uh, contactee of the 1950s I investigated who wasn't the subject of an FBI file. You know, and that that is kind of pretty amazing that, you know, you think of all the people who have had abduction experiences today, and for the most part, you know, they don't get visited by FBI agents. Or if they have been, you know, that all these abductees have systematically refused to ever talk about it. But, you know, you if you read Adamski and George Van Tassel's FBI files, they actually talk about it wasn't just clandestine spying. They actually traveled to the homes of these people and invited themselves in and asked questions, you know, sat on their couch. So that in itself to me is pretty significant that back then there was a tremendous push to keep all the contactees under tabs and under wraps and uh, under watch i mean and i actually don't see that happening today now of course you could argue that electronic surveillance has massively replaced you know sort of gumshoe detective knocking on door surveillance and i would agree there's a good argument you know a logical argument for that you know with phone tapping computer hacking, etc., uh, where it might be easy to, to remotely spy on people. But, you know, I think, what I think is that I don't believe that everybody and his brother in ufology is watched 24-7. What I do think is that 
when certain people hit on things that maybe have a political angle to them, where they have a potential to influence a lot of people, or they could be touching upon military areas that they perceive as being related to UFOs, but might actually be something else, like Benowitz, as Paul, as uh, Greg talks about in his book. Then I think, you know, it's like the the surveillance begins at a deeper level, and I think possibly, you know, ironically, one of the best ways for people to in the intelligence community today to watch people in the UFO community and what the latest developments are is just to click on everybody's blogs and websites every day and read UFO magazine. But do you think you that know? they do that? I mean, it, it sounds like that the the reasons that they would be interested uh, in people in ufology has really little to do with ufology. Um, do you think that those reasons yeah. still stand? Because Benowitz, I mean, that was, what, the early 80s, mid-80s? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's actually, I think it's largely dependent upon the case. I personally don't think, for the most part, that government agencies care what my beliefs, your beliefs, Greg's beliefs, anybody's beliefs might be on alien abductions, for example. Um, because if they know anything about the subject, if they have any good inkling beyond the fact that these events are going on, but if they have an understanding of what lies at the heart of it, I don't think they really care if we do or not. Mm-hmm. But do I think they care if there was a possibility somebody on the inside was willing to leak to us, you know, a 200-page classified report on the government's investigation of abductions? Yes, I do. So I think, I think their concern is dictated by what we know um, and what we can know. And right now, I think most people within the UFO field aren't of a concern to them mm-hmm. because we're on the outside looking in. When we have kind of an invitation or a you know, kind of an eye in the sky, so to speak, on the inside, then they kind of get antsy. Um, And so I think, yeah, it's kind of dictated by circumstances. It's not dictated by the fact that we're all looking for the UFO truth, so to speak. So where do these guys go? I mean, you you said that they have these huge followings, right? And there's this giant contactee movement, and they're making money and all this. Do they just retire? Do they go (laughs) away? I mean, what what, what do they become? you know, I mean, you have to remember that the big one of the big differences between the contactees and the abductees, you know, if you speak to abductees today, because there's sort of this very much this genetic angle to it, genetic experimentation, DNA extraction, etc., etc., um, many people report abduction experiences, you know, albeit retrospectively through hypnosis and things, but beginning as children. If you look at the contactee movement, a lot of these guys were in their 50s, you know, when, when their encounters began. Uh, I mean, George Adamski, for example, his first book was published in 1953. He was born in 1891. You know, he was an old guy when all this kicked off. So in other words, it wasn't so much that they faded away, went into retirement. A lot of them, like Adamski, just died of old age. You know, he, was, he died in the early 60s, and he was in his mid-70s then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wasn't like these were sort of 20-year-old guys you know, running around the country, amped up and excited, that they were elderly people. Um, you know, actually, ironically, George Van Tassel, who was arguably the, you know, the second most, um, I guess, prolific contactee, was born 100 years ago this coming Thursday. Hmm. Um, you know, so we're talking about people who were in the subject maybe 10, 15 years, and the reason they were in it no longer is that they just died. You know, of old age, not for any sinister reasons, or retired or ran off with the money. They were just, you know, became senile, had heart attacks, whatever. So. 
Was there a seamless transition from contactees to abductees, or was there a period of time where nothing was going on? Well, yeah, that's a good question because you can look at it in two ways. For example, most of the contactee encounters of the 50s involved very human-looking aliens, uh, like a one-to-one kind of spiritual, philosophical exchange in a wide-awake state. You know, then the abductions of today, it's more a cold, clinical, and for some people, frightening experience in like a lab rat type situation um, with beings that look very, very different, you know, almost insect-like. But there are a couple of cases that sort of straddle, you know, the, the crossover between the two. Now, you know, we do get classic contactee cases today, and there are a few early um, abduction-type cases that predate the, the latter cases, but a lot of those, granted, have surfaced through hypnosis. But... You know, there are a number of cases that have surfaced in the 50s that seem to cross over. One of the most famous ones being, or infamous ones, I should say, being that of Antonio Villas-Boas. Um, this guy in South America um, who claimed to literally have had sex with an alien woman. Now, you know, it's an outrageous story. What's interesting, though, about the story is that she actually sounds suspiciously like one of the so-called hybrids that people talk about within ufology today, in abduction law, um, in the sense that she was human-looking, quite a bit shorter than an average human woman, but like about 4 foot 10, 4 foot 11, um, but with, with hair, but with angular, almost grey-like features, like a pointed chin, wide face, um, and large eyes which, you know, is very similar to what people talk about in abductions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, th- this was like a, a one-to-one interaction, but it was also almost like a lab rat situation where he was treated, as he, as he kind of, uh, I guess, egotistically worded it himself, uh, as a prize stud. <laughs> That's how, mm-hmm. he, how he worded it himself. Um, and if you look at even the Betty and Barney Hill case, you know, the Betty and Barney Hill case is treated very much as the first, or at least the, the definitive case that, I guess, earmarked the, you know, the whole abduction movement. But if you look at Betty and Barney Hill's story, they talk about seeing beings that actually weren't, you know, three-foot-tall spindly creatures. They were, like, five-foot-tall. Um, they didn't have the black eyes. They had almost cat-like eyes with pupils. Um, you know, they wore caps, um, which was actually something mentioned in some of the early contactee cases like Truman Bathroom, his, in his case, the aliens were like five feet foot tall and wore skull caps. Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, you know, you seem to have this weird transition where one almost melted into the other and then the other one comes out the other side, so to speak. Well, it's interesting. I mean, now that you're talking about, you know, contactees in terms of uh, LSD trips and that sort of thing, uh, it seems that if if there were some government agency that were consciously controlling them um, or their visions or whatever, um, then with abductions, what you have is the hypnotherapist unconsciously controlling, um, as seen in the differences between therapists, that a John Mack yeah. uh, will attract people or pull out of them memories that are metaphorical and uh, mm-hmm. David Jacobs will pull out this literal hybrid, you know, yeah. sterile evil alien scenario mm-hmm. um, or created or however that works. Um, so does that mean that in terms of just uh, anything actually representing contact with non-humans, uh, we have to throw out 
hypnosis and we have to throw out contactees? Well, no. I mean, I wouldn't say we have to throw out any aspect of the subject. I think we have to just recognize that when it comes to investigations, when it comes to cases, when it comes to how we, you know, gather evidence, that nothing in a subject where, in you know, the U in UFO still stands for unidentified after 60 years, when it still stands for unidentified, we should never take anything for granted that we hear or that we learn because, you know, you make a good point that the, the stories or the conclusions reached by abduction researchers are actually quite varied and different depending on, you know, the, I guess, the angle that the relevant researcher believes to be the correct one. Um, you know, for example, I'll just give you a little teaser. I've, I have a new book coming out shortly called Final Events, which actually deals with um, a think tank group in the government that I actually kind of uncovered, at least to a degree, that has concluded that the whole UFO phenomenon is demonic. It's like a satanic deception. Now, I don't hold to this theory personally, but the fact that there's a group in the, pen, in the Pentagon that does, to me, is a newsworthy story. Now, they looked at the UFO subject and, excuse me, the abduction subject and concluded that these were literal soul stealers and that the abduction DNA angle was like a, as I said, a deception. Now, for them to come to that conclusion was based around the fact that some of them had deep religious backgrounds. So you cannot get away from that. And in the same way that different abduction researchers place the abductees as either you know, the new messiahs who are going to help us create some new genetic spliced race that's going to be wonderful, or others who see them as the victims because society is going to be infiltrated by these crossbreeds and we're not going to be able to recognize them. So in other words, my view is that if even only one of these theories is correct, why is it, for example, that those people who, let's say for the, let's say for the sake of argument, the demonic angle was correct, why is it that those who everybody who's doing abduction research, why aren't they having their views overturned and uncovering the fact that it's all demonic? Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're it's not. Deception. Yeah, they're still upholding <laughs> that it's... Yeah. It's deception. <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't, would they? I mean... But, well, that's true. If the deception's working, then it's doing its job properly. Right. But, yeah. but, you know, I mean, you can look at it that way, or you can look at it from the perspective that you know, researchers are finding information that in many respects concludes or that dovetails with the theories that they already personally have in line. So. Mm -hmm. Well, but I'll, before I pass over to Jeff, just on that note, because we, we really want to have you back on um, to dedicate a show to that government group, because I, I find mm -hmm. that fascinating. I'm sure Jeff does. Um, well, hopefully that book will be out, I, I hope, in about two three months at the most, something like that. Oh, great. Well, let me just ask you about that. I mean, how did they, okay, they have these well, presumably Christian, but definitely mm -hmm. fundamentalist, right? Religious backgrounds. Yeah. Extreme uh, fundamentalist in some respects. Um, but so do they actually, I mean, how influenced are they by that when they're looking at the data? I mean, did, do you get a sense that they looked at these cases and, and that's, how they came to it, or did they have the conclusion in mind first? I mean, how do you look yeah. at abduction well, testimony and figure soul stealers? Well, one of the reasons was that they interviewed a number of people who had had the abduction experience and who, for example, had who were themselves religious and supposedly, you know, again, this is this is just the their theories and ideas. The 
the story was that they interviewed a number of abductees who had actually managed to stop an abduction by using the name of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, most people say that the abduction, there's no way to stop it when they start it. You know, they take you away, they do whatever. They, these people were talking about actually being able to stop an abduction just by using a name. Mm-hmm. Um, and that led them to believe, um, you know, that there was like a religious component. They also, for example, were deeply influenced by the fact that some of the early contactees, like George Hunt Williamson, were quite open about the fact that they didn't do their alien contacts, allegedly, by face-to-face meetings, but by uh, the use of Ouija boards. Mm-hmm. Um, and they felt that the messages and the entities were, again, like paranormal entities masquerading as aliens, you know, to worm their way into people's lives. Um, they pointed to the issue of... Um, actually, one of the most interesting things which I can, you know, mention is that they also talked about Roswell being like some sort of Trojan horse um, to deliberately stage a crash um, with with materials, um, literally kind of, I guess, created in what you might call a demonic alchemy, and then just carefully, you know, to stage a crash, to have people think and assume that these were vulnerable extraterrestrials, and it was a way to worm their way into our society. So, you know, it was it was a lot of very, very weird and surreal, almost, things, where you have these high-powered military personnel, intelligence personnel, who actually do believe that, you know, we are coming up to literal, like, rapture Armageddon, um, eschatology-type scenarios with the final battle against good and evil being you know, God's angels versus literal techno-demons from hell in, in constructed flying saucers. Mm-hmm. You know, very very strange and unsettling story. Unsettling if you believe it's true, but also unsettling if you don't believe it's true, but you realise that there are people in government who for years have been paid and have extensive think tanks supporting this belief. So. Yeah, and I, I guess it also depends on... Uh, how literally you you take this testimony and and how um, how oh, well, much stock you put yeah. into people? I, I, let me just tell you this. I mean, I, I have a, my neighbor Liz, who's a friend of mine from college. Uh, not at all really interested in any of this stuff. It kind of scares her when I talk about it, so I don't talk about it that much with her. Um, but we were talking about it the other night, and as a consequence, she had a dream about aliens, and she was telling me this dream, and it was very detailed, and it was very you know cool and meaningful, and, and all that. And I thought, well, gee, you know, if any of my experience, or not, I shouldn't say any, but if a lot of my experience or friends had that dream, they'd immediately think that they had an abduction experience. They mm. wouldn't chalk that up to a dream. It would have more meaning for them. Yeah. And it wouldn't dawn on them that the fact that they concentrate so much on this stuff produces those dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder how much of that is, is involved in all of this testimony. Um, that we then go, oh, that's mm. because they don't differentiate, and then mm. we just see it on the page as their testimony. Mm. Um, it's harder for us to to look back and go, no, that was just a dream. You know? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that it is incredibly difficult to know. And, you know, we are faced with the biggest problem, I think, with things like abductions and many UFO experiences is that, to an extent, they do occur in sort of, I guess, like an altered state you know, where sometimes the witness is rendered unconscious, they're taken from a bedroom, etc. There's some cases, you know, where it almost seems, as this this group believed, you know, that it was 
the people weren't even physically taken always, that it was almost like, you know, that there was a technology that allowed the soul almost to be extracted from the body and almost taken in like a an out-of-body experience rather than a physical 3D realm. And, of course, when you're faced with dealing with altered states of mind, etc., then it, I'll, I'll be the first to admit it becomes very difficult to differentiate, well, you know, were we talking about someone taken to a 3D knock-on nuts and bolts craft type thing, or was it a purely internal experience, or, you know, paradoxically, could it be somehow a bit of both? Mm-hmm. When we don't even have those answers, that's why I think it becomes so difficult to have answers to the whole phenomenon and why, you know, even now we're still grasping at straws and, and why there are so many theories, you know, demonic, alien, time travelers, interdimensional, you know, Mactonis, crypto-terrestrials. There's, there's so many theories because there's clearly something going on, but we don't have tangible evidence, in our hands at least, as to what that is. So we kind of create frameworks that seem acceptable and i think sometimes not deliberately i think just subconsciously belief systems color and influence which theory or belief system we go with so. mm-hmm. jeff well, i'm curious uh nick with the with the demonic stuff yeah <clears throat> did you find i don't want to make you give too much of your book away here but did you come across anything that they had found as far as uh, photographic evidence of structured craft and and how they interpreted that to kind of signify a spiritual war type of scenario? I mean, was there anything in there of that? No, no, for the most part, no. When we're talking about actual physical things, they were talking about, as I said, almost like a demonic alchemy. They actually viewed all, literally all abductions as like a, a, not hallucination, but like a created hallucination in the mind of the experiencer um, to where the whole purpose was essentially to uphold the extraterrestrial motif, the idea and the notion that they are, in simple terms, alien scientists doing DNA-related experiments or genetic, you know, reproductive-type situations. Um, And they put the marks on the body down to things like stigmata, um, Uh which, which again, you know, is, is, is in line with their views. So it was, they actually, you know, viewed the entire thing as being like a, a surreal dream-like hallucination. They don't believe that anyone has ever been physically abducted onto a nuts and bolts alien spaceship ever. I mean, one of the things that I, and I have to admit, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, that was my prevailing theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I said demonic, but that really wasn't a good enough term for what I was trying to describe, yeah. which was, you know, just a toxicity to the whole thing. Yeah. <clears throat> but one of the things that, that I came across in, uh, I don't know, at least in terms of the visuals that we could go out throughout history of, of this subject, and if you've got decent or somewhat decent uh, you know, structured craft-looking objects, is that you always seem to come down to seven sides or 13 sides or 13 lights or 13 windows or seven windows or seven lights. So it's a, it's a lot of recurring sevens and thirteens mm. in that. In that yeah. you know, seven being in league yeah. with uh, with with God, and thirteen mm-hmm. being a rebellion yeah. uh, to that. And so I almost thought, you know, could this be uh, a, a, tandem, a tandem thing, not just mm-hmm. demonic, but could it be the other side doing that as yeah. well? And, and we're just perceiving it in such a way as to think spacemen. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think you, you make valid points there, and I think also, 
you know, it's like with, with Mac Tonis's um, Crypto Terrestrials book. I don't know if you've seen that yet, but Patrick at Anomalous Books, Patrick Weed, sent me a couple of copies the other day. And, you know, this, this is the first time I had a chance to sort of reread it. Uh, I mean, I read Mac's original Word document. This is now the sort of the fully edited version. And, you know, Mac makes good points about how our technology is advancing to such a level to this day that we don't need to do intrusive you know, investigations of people, or even we, we can do it in a way where the person would never even know. There'd be no need for screen memories or memory blocks or right. anything like that. And yet it seems that these aliens that are so far ahead of us that they can get from point A to point B use technology that is going to be redundant here on Earth. And in many respects, he's already redundant here on Earth. Mm. Um, and as Mac points out, you know, it's almost like they behave like jesters, um, just following an agenda. You know, Mac also points out this whole issue of, you know, is it only coincidence that, for example, there are a lot of reports of people driving down the road and they just happen to see aliens taking soil samples. It's almost like an instilled idea that they have to be seen doing the sort of things we expect <laughs> them to do. Right. And this is, again, one of the things that, you know, the demonic angle picked up on, the idea that there seems to be stage-managed events that relate to our cultural beliefs of the particular time period and that seem logical to the people of the time, as logical in terms of how they would perceive aliens to act. When it, where does Mac points out, although you know, his crypto-terrestrial theory is very different, it still has, it, has at its heart the idea that the AT motif is like a, almost like a stage play, you know, but it's one that's continually played over and over again to hide the fact that in Max's book, you know, the, the idea that these are ancient humans, an ancient offshoot of the human race that is now in a genetic decline and that, you know, uses technology that is antiquated but paradoxically seems alien because they seem so alien to us. So. Yeah, complete separation of, of, of culture, I mean, from one yeah. to the other. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think, uh, and have you come across anything in your travels that say anything to the notion of we see what we expect to see. Uh, it, it might not necessarily be the, the the others that are implanting anything, but rather that we are interpreting it because we simply can't interpret it any other way uh, in league with the kind of a cultural contamination issue, which is, to me, is one of the biggest issues with hypnotherapy uh, stuff. We just had a, a doctor on a couple of weeks ago that... Uh, pretty much blew the regression therapy out of the water mm-hmm. um, as far as getting legitimate data. But ultimately, do you think when someone or when we do see the unknown, when we see the enigmatic presence of the other, do you think we're pretty much seeing what we expect to see or kind of uh, influenced by societal mm-hmm. uh, issues of the day or, or of the culture of the time? Yeah, I think there's actually a very good point to your argument in favor of that. I mean, one of the chapters I have in the Contact ebook, for example, um, deals with one of the things that I think has been significantly overlooked throughout the years, and that's many of the early defining contactees and their experiences began not with people seeing a UFO or even long-haired aliens, but they actually reported um, being felt compelled to go out to a particular remote location, and they would see these weird ethereal balls of light come down in front of them, anywhere from the size of like a tennis ball to like a beach ball. 
and they would feel hypnotically entranced by them. And then suddenly, these balls of light would, would change and alter into either like a classic flying saucer type shape or, you know, literally like a, a definitive space brother of the early contactee movement. Um, and they do sound very much like that the, uh, as, as strange and as controversial as it sounds, it does sound very much like that these ethereal balls of light could be like the defining intelligence and they pick up on our cultural belief systems and subconscious ideas and then manifest have the ability to render us into an altered state and then manifest in the way in which we find acceptable. You know, so these people back in the 50s would see these balls of light which would suddenly turn into these benevolent-looking space brothers. Now, sure. there's a classic example I have in the book, a man named Ralph Lale, who lived at the foot of a place called Brown Mountain in North Carolina. And in 1962, Brown Mountain has this long history of these strange balls of light flying around the mountain, quite not unlike the more famous Marfa lights of Texas. And he was, was fascinated by these lights, would go up to the mountains and literally just stake out the area and, and saw them on several occasions. One occasion in 1962 at very, very close quarters. And he felt hypnotized and entranced by this ball of light as it came towards him. Suddenly, um, before he knew it, there was a flying saucer there and these wise, angelic-looking aliens. And they basically gave him a warning about the perils of nuclear war, but told him that, you know, provided we change our ways, that everything was going to be okay. Now, this is like a classic Space Brother message, but what's interesting about Ralph Lale's case was that it wasn't, is the time period. It actually happened on one of the key days when the Cuban Missile Crisis was at its height, which almost did end in nuclear war. So, in other words, this man, like a lot of people who were alive then, I'm sure, thought the world was literally going to erupt into nuclear war. He sees one of these ethereal hypnotic balls of light and suddenly, you know, the, the kindly aliens reassure him that everything's going to be okay. To me, that sounds like a classic internal worry being externalized, but possibly picked up by a genuine intelligence, which then manifests in a way that allows him to have like a meaningful relationship with it, an ex, uh, you know, a vocal exchange, right. but he's not seen in its real form. It's almost like a matrix-type scenario where the <laughs> phenomenon yeah. is picking up on his internal fears and externalizing it, but trying to help him in the process. Yeah. Right, right. Well, I mean, back to the contactees thing for a minute. I think at least, and I think we're close to the same age, but I think... Uh, yeah, I'm... Uh, 46 this year, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm, I'm 42, <laughs> and, and I feel no better about it than you do. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think, at least for us, one of the big contactees that's still alive, that, of course, I mean, most of the guys that uh, that we've talked about with uh, mm -hmm. Adamski, they were dead before we even knew what was going on. Uh, but uh, Billy Meyer... Mm. It's one of the big ones that we know that's still around. And back in the 70s, there were all sorts of the UFO films and major releases mm. in theaters that that, uh, that everybody was talking about. And his pictures were always at the forefront of that yeah. case. Now, I, I mean, I, I think if you've been on the Internet, you pretty much know what I think of that. Mm. Uh, so what do you what do you what lines do you draw for that? Well, you know, I think the problem with. Any, any of the contactees, you know, whether it's Adamski, Billy Meyer, or whoever, you know, you have 
the believers and the detractors. And the reason you have that is because, unfortunately, it is so frustratingly difficult to actually definitively dismiss everything. That's the problem. Um, You know, it's it's like... um, Well, don't you think that's because there's so much of it? Is that that's that's why it's so hard? Well, I mean, you you could make that argument, but then, you know, it's like I come back to people like Adamski, um, there were people who said that they saw him with a diplomatic passport that's, you know, the type that people like the Department of State would use that, you know, for traveling from country to country. Um, you know, uh, George Van Tassel, a fantastic story of his having astral travels around the, uh, you know, in, in space, in a, in a UFO in Earth orbit, being taken in an out-of-body experience. Then you find five years before, which sounds crazy, but then five years before, he was deeply helping the FBI on espionage cases at Hughes Aircraft Company. He was friends with Howard Hughes, who had major links with the CIA. So, you know, it's unfortunately, although people, you know, say, well, these photographs are faked, this story is obviously bogus, when you look back into the background, then you find these other things which don't sit well with the idea that these people are just crazy fantasists or whatever. They always have something in the background which kind of throws you, you know, like off at a curve or whatever. And that, that's why, on the one hand, it's, fr- it's fascinating. On the other hand, it's frustrating because it is so difficult to say yes or no hoaxer or, you know, genuine person, etc. And, and, you know, that, that can apply to, I would say, pretty much all the contactees because their stories are so controversial. Um, but then, you know, as I said, there's always something in the background that makes you kind of go, huh. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I, I would have to ask, like, how significant are they? Because I think most people's perception of looking back into the history of some of these contactees is that these are very, 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 very marginal people. These are people who essentially can't get arrested in any other field except that, you know, um, and, and, and that more often than not, what you end up finding is uh, questionable activities, in the background, uh, as well as, I mean, maybe something interesting here and there. I mean, the question for me is always going to be, can you not just put that down to, uh, I think you said Van Tassel was one of the ones that uh, had was associated with Howard Hughes, and then the yeah. CIA peripherally. I mean, couldn't the argument be made that the CIA pretty much put him up to saying Space Brothers and all of yeah, that? I, not, yeah. And, you know, like kind of being some kind of covert implant into mucking yeah. up the waters even more. Yeah, I actually have a whole chapter on that in the book as well, the idea that because the contactee stories were so controversial, that there may well have been people in the official world who wanted to discredit the more credible reports by, I guess, swamping and saturating the scene with outrageous stories of people saying they met long-haired space brothers, etc. Right. Um, you know, the fact that many of these people were tied to the intelligence community you know, does make me think that that's a viable scenario in some of these stories and cases and and people. So again, you know, it doesn't, but this doesn't sort of dismiss them just as pure hoaxes. And and that's, that's really all I've tried to do with the book is point out that this, I guess the, the overriding argument or belief system that many people have, have, that it's simplistically that, oh, George Adamski met aliens from Venus, or George Adamski was a, a lying bootlegger, you know. It's, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's not that black and white and as simplistic. Sure. You know, it's, it's, it's far, 
far more complex and and I think that that is the problem when it comes you know it's not me avoiding answering the question about specific contactees it's just so problematic that you know these these aren't black and white people there's, there's their lives and backgrounds and history are so complex and almost like Machiavellian in some respects as well right do you find that most of the I don't know most of the drive or most of the sideline objectivity of coming out with these stories and trying to start a movement of some sort. I mean, obviously when we're talking about Meyer, he's got a compound where they farm and all of that. And if you, of course, if you go there to visit with him or talk with him or, Mm -hmm. or, or commune with him, you, you've got to work, (laughs) you know, uh, that sort of thing. I mean, is that, I mean, does it come into in some ways looking at a case and saying, these are people who just really don't want to work. They wanted, they'd rather scam and try and get people to, to, well, to, to carry them through life. I mean, was it Damsky a rich man? I mean, did he make tons no, of money off no, of this? No, I mean, you know, I, other than one or two people, I don't know anybody who really earns a living from ufology. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, if I was thought, you know, I wanted to make a living from ufology today at 46 nearly, I would say, I'd ask in clues, I'd failed miserably. <laughs> you know, but the fact I continue you know, is is because it's for me it's not a money-making thing. I do it because it fascinates me. Yeah, I work full-time as a writer, but there's no way I could earn a living from ufology. You know, most of what I do is mainstream journalism for just news stories. I do a lot of feature writing for English newspapers on, on everything, you know, from the Gulf War to, you know... Bird flu virus or whatever, you know, car right. accident. You could start a cult, well. though, couldn't you, Nick? I mean. <laughs> well, I guess I, guess I could. <laughs> but, I mean. um, but, you know, I mean, what I have found is I interviewed a number of people for the book who said that although they felt some of the contactees were liars or had possibly had one or two initial real experiences but then elaborated on them, they felt that although that the some of the cases may have been not genuine, they did feel that the contactees themselves believed that the message was worthwhile. So, in other words, they felt that even if they had to lie, it was worth it if they could try and get people round to more like a mind-body-spirit lifestyle and away from advocating nuclear weaponry. They felt that, you know, the, the long-term advantage didn't really matter if they lied to a few people here and there. So, in other words... In their eyes, you know, it was a lie for a, a bigger good, so to speak. Um, yeah, I've heard that I don't about agree with it. Yeah. yeah, I don't agree with that approach because I think, you know, if you're caught doing that once, then everything you've said before or ever since, sure. everybody will take it with a pinch of salt at the very least. So, you know, it's kind of like the bargain, it's almost like those Faustian bargains where, you know, it's it's just not worth it. In the, uh, But... I think there is something to be said for the idea that a lot of the contactees thought, well, you know, this this idea is a good one. Okay, maybe I'd, the experiences weren't real, but, you know, I feel that it's, I mean, they, you know, they feel it was worth doing and worth saying and getting disciples behind them and followers because right. for better good, it, it would be worth it. So. Yeah, so what is, um, I mean, currently for you, what is your prevailing favorite theory about, Mm-hmm. Um, all of the connectivity of these different, I mean, you, and you've written on Bigfoot, you've written on mm-hmm. all sorts of things like that. I mean, do you see, like we've been talking about on this show for a long time now, the connective tissues between mm-hmm. ghost phenomena, Bigfoot phenomena, UFOs, so on and so forth. Do you, or are you seeing those things uh, in active yeah. play? 
Well, you know, I mean, to an extent, yes. I mean, you know, like a lot of people, when I first got interested in UFOs as a kid to, and cryptozoology, for me it was very black and white. You know, like UFOs were nuts and bolts craft, Bigfoot was an unidentified ape, Loch Ness Monster was a you know a colony of surviving plesiosaurs, whatever. Um, for me, the more as time has gone on, I've come more around to the idea that whatever lies at the heart of the UFO phenomenon, I truly don't have, you know, for the, for the genuinely anomalous cases that we cannot, you know, say are hoaxes or military craft, for the genuinely anomalous cases, I truthfully really don't know what their point of origin is. What I do think is that, like Mac points out in his book, and as many other research, like John Keel and Jacques Pillay have said, that the phenomenon is being deceptive with us that we're, we're getting a picture and an image of what's going on that may not be quite what it is, and that they do kind of act like court jesters, constantly replaying, you know, a scene from a play over and over again, conveniently being in the right place to kind of instill the alien motif of, motif of collecting soil samples just where they're, you know, they're, they're going to be seen, you know, things right. like that. And the same with Bigfoot, you know, it's like, Nobody's ever caught Bigfoot. It's not that Bigfoot's elusive. It's almost like Bigfoot's too weird, too weirdly elusive. You know, it's why is it that the the animals that never get caught are Bigfoot lake monsters, um, the Yeti, the Chupacabras, you know, these 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 large wing creatures like Mothman and the Thunderbirds and all those sort of things. There's certain archetypes that intrude upon our society and then vanish in the blink of an eye and we never catch them they never get run over by cars they never get washed up on the shore <laughs> right. of the right. and to me when you have that happen time and time again again it's almost like something is playing with us and presenting imagery that isn't what it seems now because that seems to follow a similar path does that mean it's all connected with ufos i'm not entirely sure but i think that all these things the one thing they have in common is that, to me at least, none of them are what they seem to be. They're either paradoxically more or less than they appear to be. Right. Uh, do you? Well, I mean, I was I was saying exactly what you, what you mentioned there at the end is that they are connected in some way, but not not necessarily connected specifically to a hub of ufology, but all connected in a big circle. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see things like we? I've talked before about a case that I had one time uh, here in Maryland that a woman's driving home, and, and this was a a woman that I that I knew peripherally through her husband, mm-hmm. but very intelligent woman, held a a very good job, uh, very well educated, said that she essentially saw a craft hovering over a field. It was lighting up the whole field. This was middle of the night, and uh, it was the Starship Enterprise upside down, mm. literally. Markings and all, mm-hmm. and, and and that that did kind of change my perception of mm-hmm. how people view things, how they see things, what they're conditioned to see, yeah. uh, and and then how the phenomena presents itself. Mm-hmm. Do you find things like that in say the Bigfoot story? Do you find that people see weird variations of that kind of thing? Uh, do, do you have that same perceptual quality, or does this seem more like a flesh and blood thing to the people who see it? Well, you know, I think actually you can look you can look at it from both ways. I mean, I've interviewed people who've, you know, seen a Bigfoot, which for all intents and purposes looks like a flesh and blood animal, leaves footprints. And the, the first reason they've actually been aware of its presence is because of presence is because of the crunching of 
heavy feet, you know, on branches and twigs has right. made them turn round, which clearly sounds like a physical animal. But then again, you know, I've spoken to people who said they saw Bigfoot, and the moment the creature realized it was looking at them, I mean, that they were looking at it, it kind of shimmered away, just almost like a heat haze and, and was gone. You know, it's like, how do you reconcile that with a physical animal? You know, it's like Loch Ness. People always associate Loch Ness with the Loch Ness Monster, and, and quite rightly so. But then again, they forget that none other than Alistair Crowley had a house at Loch Ness and tried to summon up demons from oh. within the loch. Um, there's, there's been several very weird men in black cases, actually quite literally on the shore of the loch. UFO encounters over the loch, people seeing huge black cats, which shouldn't be running around anywhere in England, but literally at Loch Ness. Um, oh. You know, so there's, there's all these sorts of problems where something suggests a physical being or a creature, then you throw the spanner in the work, so to speak, and it's, you know, you're dealing with something else. Again, you know, it's like people like John Keel suggest, you know, are we just looking at some sort of weird phenomenon that screws with us, you know, for <laughs> yeah. fewer reasons? Are we living in a matrix world where all of this weird phenomena is when the program screws up, you know, and they have to get the equivalent of the geek squad out to fix it or whatever <laughs> you know well, i mean that's the question i was going to ask you about i mean just take for instance Loch ness um so many weird things have been cited around there's so many weird occurrences has anyone done any sort of geological survey to find if there's something absolutely unique about that area um i don't actually think they have um you know are you talking about kind of some like persinger stuff about you know, well, yeah, I mean, things affecting the mind and things. Yeah, like I mean, you, yeah. you could you could make the same analogy with. Uh, I mean, when we had Colin Andrews on to talk about the crop circles and uh, all of these things, kind of, well, yeah. at least in the UK, fairly centrally located around a particular area, and that yeah. particular area seems to have very unique qualities about it that yeah. might seem to facilitate phenomena being perceived. Yeah, I mean, I know, for example, you know, there are people who. You know, whether it's psychological or not, but when they go in places like Stonehenge in England, people have felt like tingling, you know, they felt uplifted and rejuvenated, whether that's because they're in Stonehenge and, you know, it's this ancient structure or there's something more going on. That's that's a big question. But you get that in crop circles. You know, you get that a lot of places that are perceived as having, you know, magical or paranormal qualities attached to them. And I actually think it's sort of kind of, it's very difficult to sort of make a, a conclusion one way or the other it's almost to the point of being impossible you know when you're dealing with a, an energy or something that we don't really understand what it is it's difficult to know if it's impacting on the mind or not but you know i still come back to you know you got things like the squid the skinwalker ranch over here right you know this the, the skinwalk hunt for the skinwalker book where you've got a whole range of weird creatures and ufo activity and different things going on in this one heavily concentrated area um, you know, and why should, you know, if there's no connection, why should Bigfoot appear where UFOs have been seen? If Bigfoot's just a hidden ape, you know, hiding out in the woods, it should, there shouldn't be any correlation. Um, but, you know, there are these rogue cases when there is this correlation. And, you know, unfortunately, my view is that the reason we don't have a lot of the answers is because much of cryptozoology is kind of firmly fixed in rigid flesh and blood realms. Right. And much of the UFO subject is firmly fixed in the ETH realm. Right. And most people aren't willing to go outside of those realms. So 
to me, it's no wonder they're left baffling their heads, you know, scratching their heads and baffled as to what's going on. Because my view, you know, I don't pretend to be any better than anybody else or to have the answers. But what I do think is that we have a vast amount of information, but no definitive conclusions. And my view is I, I investigate things with absolutely no belief system in place because I have nothing to base a belief system on because the subject is so absurd in many ways. You know, it's, you, you talk about a radar report, a, a pilot chases a UFO, which sounds intriguing and credible. Then you have somebody like Joe Simonton, a classic case in the early 60s, where he said aliens made pancakes for him. You know, it's it's one extreme to the other where the phenomenon, it's almost, it it plays with us and taunts us. And that's why it's difficult for me, at least, to come. You know, people say, oh, you're avoiding answering the question. I'm not. I'm honest enough to admit I have no firm conclusion as to what's going on other than something is. (laughs) Well, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's obvious that something's going on. But, I mean, not only do you have all of the things that you just mentioned as far as in a ufological sense, but you've also got black-budgeted projects that are flying around that nobody knows, nobody's seen before, nobody knows what they are. How do we separate that from this? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, you know. there's no doubt about that. That In my mind, you know, we have, a jet, we've had, we have our UFOs and somebody else's UFOs. You know, sure. There's, there's no sure. doubt that some UFOs, probably, you know, back to the early years, you know, if we had all the files, et cetera, we could write some off at least as military projects as you know i have my suspicions about things like rendlesham even for example yeah some sort of sophisticated hologram slash you know advanced technology just to screw with the troops and see or psychotronic weapons i mean yeah exactly yeah yeah um what um well here's the last question i got for you i mean you mentioned that so many people are so resistant to looking in different directions and and that's something that we're like really huge on this show about Mm -hmm. why do you think aside from the obvious reasons with some researchers out there that that it's a blow to their ego or or it's a complete deconstruction of all their years of work Mm. why do you think that uh the public then also refuses to see kind of what i don't know and again, I don't think we're any of us here at this table are any bigger than anybody else or any smarter than anybody else. But it's obvious that if you look at this thing, if you take a step back, that it's far more complex than anything that we've per, you know, that, that, we, that we theorized about. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So why are people so resistant to the notion of looking at it from completely different angles? Well, I think as far as the general public's concerned, for the most part, I don't think they're resistant I, I think for the most part the public isn't exposed to it you know if you go on any of the mainstream channels that do ufo documentaries you know uh, on television they will either present the extraterrestrial hypothesis or then they will get on the token skeptic to say why aliens aren't coming here you know right. you won't very often find you know a mainstream ufo documentary suggesting that alien abductions might not be alien and it might not all be in the mind but it might be you know something to do with altered states promoted prompted by drugs hallucinations demonic activity mm. they, they don't touch these more esoteric areas so i think for the public tv for, for the most part is dumbed down and ufo documentaries are dominated by aliens are real no they're not it's all hoaxes, you know. Right, that, yeah. That's why the public's view is coloured into those two camps. Now, yeah. as far as the UFO community is concerned, I think you hit on it, is that a lot of people, particularly 
you know, I, I can't say I'm one of the younger members of ufology. You know, I'm only four years off 50, you know. So, <laughs> um, but, you know, particularly people who have invested 50 years in the subject, yeah. shall we say, I think a lot of it comes down to, of, oh, shit, you know, I've invested 50 years into this. Can I actually say that I'm wrong if I feel I am? Now, to me, it's not a matter of being wrong. You know, there's no doubt that these people have investigated phenomena that is, that is real, that is genuine in some right. fashion. But I don't see there's anything wrong with altering a person's views over time. You know, it's like, not me, but some people, you know, their musical tastes change, you know. <laughs> Mine's right. been punk since punk began, <laughs> you know. Right. But other people, you know, they get older and they, they mellow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And their their yeah. tastes change and their lifestyles change. Now, but it's almost like within ufology, that rule doesn't apply. It's like, well, he's the abduction guy. He's the debunker. He's the Roswell yeah. believer. This is the guy who says Roswell was a mogul balloon. And it's almost like the 11th commandment, thou shalt not change thy opinion. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, the funny thing about that is, is you've got somebody like Jacques Vallée, who's, I mean, arguably one of the one of the foremost guys in this, that most people will say, that's my favorite guy. That's the guy I really take a lot of. Uh, I take a lot of what he says and I hold it very dear um there's a guy who's revised his theories how many times i mean he's a scientist that's That's what you do i mean you get points for being wrong in science (laughs) there's nothing worse than being rigidly stuck into one scenario when we all openly admit as i said that the u in ufo still stands for unidentified the eth may well be valid it may be 100 percent valid but until we can prove it it's just a hypothesis along the lines of you know, crypto-terrestrials, ultra-terrestrials, whatever-terrestrials. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jeremy. Uh, yeah, I just have a couple more questions. One, uh, on the sociology of all of this, since you hang in all of these circles, do you find that personality types break down along the same lines in ufology as they do in ghost research, crypto-terrestrial, uh, crypto-zoology, <laughs> psychics, all that stuff, all those various fields? Because Jeff and I often complain about ufology, but do you find the same types of people dominating all of the fields? In, what, what do you mean? Do you mean like split into different categories? Well, sizes? yeah, that you've got, you've got um, X amount of hoaxers, you've got X amount of arrogant blowhards, you've got oh, X I amount see. of people mm. who really do want to know what's going on, yeah. et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, I think there are certain, you know, but I don't think this, this is anything to do with the 14 fields. I think this is, the, you know, we have to remember that whether... Cryptozoologists and ufologists, they're human beings first. You know, human beings are complex beings. Um, And so I think that, you know, it's nothing strange that there may be people in ufology who speak at conferences to make money. Others are there because they love the applause. You know, others are there for the lines of coke backstage uh, after the gig or whatever. Yeah, whoops. (laughs) Um, uh, Others are, you know, there to sell books. Others are there for whatever reason. But that's not necessarily relative to ufology or cryptozoology. You could find that at a conference of, you know, people, I don't know, who sell lipstick, you know, or frozen food or something, you know, a conference. You're always going to get that because we're human beings first. So I don't think the fact that you get that, those parallels and patterns is necessarily significant. It, it just shows that, you know, human beings, human beings are very diverse and, and different. Mm-hmm. And getting back to contactees, um, were any of them ever scared of any of their events? 
Um, some of them were. What you found was that some of them were very scared of the initial experiences, but what's interesting is that some of them actually talked about how their lives were transformed overnight. Now, you can look at this from sort of almost like a psychological perspective. I mentioned Orfeo Angelucci earlier. Now, Angelucci is a child, and through his teens and 20s, was a very sickly person. He was ill. Um, he almost sounds like he had like a, a severe case of almost like post-traumatic stress disorder where he just could not function in the real world. You know, the kind of person who, you know, he gets a scratch on his arm and it's got to be skin cancer or, you know, he gets a headache, it's got to be a tumour. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't function in a day-to-day -day job. Everything was stressful. And then he had this UFO experience and he was literally transformed and elevated overnight to somebody with a great deal of confidence all these illnesses which a lot of them sound like they were they were real but you know they were psychologically driven um went away now you know you could argue that because there was actually a couple of points when he was close to death was it the case that he was subconscious had found an outlet to get him out of that situation and that was to elevate him as to become you know the mouthpiece of the space brothers and he was it was his subconscious literally saving him from an untimely death from, you know, mental health and whatever by putting him on this path. Or was it some sort of external intelligence, you know, also putting him on this path because, you know, he was perceived as being someone who could do something worthwhile. And you, you do find that in a lot of the contactees, that they had traumatic events in their lives and that the experience took them away from that trauma. Were there any that you read that you thought, yeah, I think that probably is contact with something else? Yes. Um, um, Orfeo Angelucci is one. Um, Ralph Lale, um, another. Um, Truman Bethurum. Now, what I don't do is, as I said, take the stories literally as they recorded them. I actually do believe they had some sort of interaction with an intelligence that literally did manipulate their minds, and they perceived it in the fashion that the intelligence wished to kind of manifest for them. So what's the difference uh, between their accounts and the people you don't believe? Oh, well, I mean, the, one, the ones that are just truly outlandish. I mean, there's one, um, one guy, um, oh, what was his name, Buck, uh, Buck Nelson, and he was a contactee in the late 50s, early 60s, and he said he'd been taken on board a UFO, and he met these classic space brothers. They actually had a dog on board the craft. And he said he had a he just happened to have like a little cellophane packet with him, and so he, he plucked a load of hair off the dog, put it in this cellophane container, and when he went back to Earth, and he gave lectures, he started selling this alien dog hair for like a a dollar a, a hair or whatever. <laughs> and when somebody actually looked into it, they found out that the so-called alien dog hair was identical to the hair on his own pet dog. <laughs> so, I was hoping you know, it wouldn't even be dog hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. dog had a bald spot. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, you know, stories like this are entertaining and funny, and I guess they don't do anybody any harm, but, you know, th things like this, they're obvious. You know, yeah. they're obviously straightforward hoaxes where somebody did... You know, th that is one of the things. I mean, I actually have several chapters on the book in the book on people who were outright con men and literally, you know, they literally fleeced the classic little old lady brigade, you know, for dollars, saying mm -hmm. we need to, I need your dollars to help the Space Brothers build a craft to fly to Venus. You know, all these little old four-foot-ten ladies would go to their 
post office or banks and, you know, draw the money out and give it to these con men, you know. Well, see, now they're lazy. People. Now, like, you, you look at what Greer's doing and it's like, uh, I've got back problems and I need a first-class plane ticket to the next conference. <laughs> well, I mean, there's one person I talk about in the book, um, Harold Burney. Harold Burney was someone who, um, who, who was an outright con man and the FBI opened an extensive file on him talking about how he literally fleeced this one woman, um, a secretary who he hired for literally all her money. Um, they finally tracked him down, but of course, you know, with a lot of these people, <laughs> the money was long gone and spent or hidden away or who knows what. But it's, you know, there's, there were, as I, as I point out in the book, I don't, you know, I, I don't portray the contactee movement through sort of, you know, the whole rose-tinted glasses angle. I, I point out the good, uh, the bad, and the downright, you know, thieves <laughs> you know that's that's how, that what they were were contactees generally supportive of each other or did they fight amongst themselves no that actually there wasn't that much infighting and this is actually something greg bishops picked up on where he i know greg interviewed one of the contactees i forget who it was now but he said there was kind of this unspoken rule where the contactees didn't criticize each other for fear that someone would pick holes in somebody else's story so they mm-hmm. kind of just genially, you know, nodded at the right time when everybody else was giving their lectures and clapped and, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, we're all in it together until the end, so to speak. And and I think actually part of it does come down to the fact that, you know, joking aside, whether or not the stories were true, they felt that by spreading these stories of peace, love, and the aliens wanted to help us, that they were doing a good thing. And that sort of overrode the, the possibility that, you know, they were actually doing, trying to spread a good message, but by what wasn't a particularly honest way of doing it, shall we say. Any evidence in the government files or the FBI files that links these contactees, any any sort of reference to, like, Project Contactee or something like that? Yeah. No, there actually isn't. I mean, there's a, a huge number of um, references to links with the Communist Party and Communist affiliations. Um, for example, George Hunt Williamson, one of the early contactees, was deeply involved with um, political groups that were against President Roosevelt's um, policies in the Second World War. So, in other words, a lot of people who were what today, you know, a lot of people would consider, I guess, subversives in many respects. Um, that that definitely shines through in a lot of the reports. And a lot of them were just, you know... You, the, the cosmic equivalent of used car salesmen, you know, they had the, what we in England, we called blag, you know, they could talk the way out of anything mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, make a dollar in the process as well. Um, in other words, you know, they did have these sort of controversial backgrounds. Others, you know, they were just enigmatic. They had nothing weird in their backgrounds, like Orfeo Angelucci, who was just someone who, if his story's true, was in the right place at the right time to sort of spread their word and get his health in order and write books and, you know, elevate himself. So the files don't really provide... that. That's the one angle. You know, we have a lot of rumours and stories about the idea that there was this sort of insider project and the contactees were part of it. The only proof, if you, well, evidence we have of that is the words of the contactees themselves. Now, my view, looking at the FBI files, is if some of these contactees were working for the government to ridicule the overall UFO subject, the FBI didn't know about it. It was being done by somebody else. And, you know, and that, that's not surprising because, you know, the whole ABC of 
agencies, whether CIA, NSA, DIA, you know, they do keep secrets from each other. And if somebody was doing like a deep cover up in the U inside the U.S. to ridicule the UFO phenomenon, it doesn't necessarily mean that they would just go knocking on the doors of the FBI and say, hey, guys, I thought you might like to know, you know, we're doing this. That, you know, that, that's not how government intelligence agencies work. Mm -hmm. You know, they keep secrets from each other as, they, as much as they do from us and the media. So. Well, I didn't uh, want to make this all about contactees, but uh, as I said in the beginning, you got to sell it to me, and you sold it to me, so uh, it well, was interesting. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I can keep going on, you know, we can show, if you want to keep going, I don't care. <laughs> on anything else you want to talk about, I'm, I'm fine. Well, no, let's save it, because we, we definitely right. want to have you back on for the... Uh, well, you should have shut book. me up, Jeremy, and then we could have, I could have, you said, you could have just said, like, oi, shut up talking about contact. No, 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 <laughs> no, my point is I didn't, I didn't want to shut you up. I, no. I thought I would, but I didn't. I, I like it. Good stuff. Uh, well, give people your website so they know where to find you. All right, well, the, the website is nickredfern.com, and I have quite a few blogs on different subjects, UFOs, cryptozoology, Roswell, different things. One I do with Greg Bishop, UFO Mystic, and... If people click on the blog sections of the website, all the blogs are listed there. So whatever the person's relevant interest is, you know, they can they can log onto the blogs there and also find out more about the books and where I'm lecturing and and things like that. So very good. Well, thank you very much, sir, for your time and for making contactees relevant to a couple of <laughs> mere experiencers of weirdness. <laughs> all right. Well, well, thanks, guys, and uh, I shall look forward to uh, being on the show again. All right. Take care. Thanks. Hey, this is Stacy. This is Wes. Be sure to check us out on the Black Fridays podcast. Where we explore the esoteric one conversation at a time. You can check us out at www.theblackfridays.net. It's a little bit freaky. And we will see you there. So, the Jeff. Yes, Jeremy. Before we get into Nick Redfern, um... When you saw your own version of The Men in Black, which I believe you've uh, talked about on this show at least once, um, yeah. at the sign shop where you used to work, right. did you have a high strangeness feeling about them, or did they seem oh. completely human to you? Yep, completely human. And yep. when Dude in the Sheet pops in and out of your home, do you have a high strangeness feeling about him, or does he seem alive? I won't say human, but alive. There's, it's definitely a, it's definitely, there's definitely a strange feeling, but I'm not, I don't know that I'd put it to high strangeness. I mean, it's certainly, the visual is certainly strange, uh, but there's nothing strange about the way he moves. I would say that, that the garment that he wears is, is strange, but there's not that, I mean, when you're talking about high strangeness, you're talking about um, the weird feeling being in the presence of, Visitors. I mean, if you're talking about that kind of high strangeness, I would say not exactly. Sort of like that, but only in the sense that there's a guy in the room wearing a black shroud. I mean, that's weird in and of itself. I definitely have experienced weird things around him that uh, that, that I would kind of throw into that category. But it's not. It's not constant. I would say overall. 
it's a feeling of uh, it's very tranquil uh, when he's around. Uh, unless he scares me, and then, then then we have a problem. Then we have the high strangeness feeling rushing is there, in. Is there a difference in your consciousness in the way – like we've got different things to compare now, right? We have the mushroom trip. We have – or you have marijuana. You've right. got dreams. You've got right. uh, visitors. And you've got normal life, and I don't know what else you've got. But of any of those, um, do, do any of them apply, or is it all just – sort of normal life frame of mind as far as my thought processes around him well is that what you're getting at yeah as far as your thought processes, as far as how you are in your head i mean do you immediately go wow i'm in another state i'm i do i mean do you feel drowsy at uh, all do you feel anything other than what you were feeling just the second before he showed up no i uh no uh it's other than there's a certain amount of of being startled uh i mean i think uh, i'm I, I think uh, that I I said something to the effect of um, when he first showed up, the the feelings that were there were were extreme weirdness, panic, fear, and all that. But he seemed to diminish that significantly just by putting his hand up. I don't know. I can't I can't explain that. But there just seems to be a um, a familiarity about him. There seems to be a a tranquil air. It's not drugged. It's not a drugged feeling. Is it in There's your stomach? Nothing... I mean, can you locate it? Can you say it feels like when you feel tranquil or you feel like in love feelings or something like that from your the pit of your stomach, um, from your chest, or from just all uh, around? I'd say it's pretty much unlike anything. I, I would think that the – this is going to be a little weird, but I think that the best thing I could describe it to was when they took my son out of my wife. It's that kind of like uh, – just just utter relief i mean to a certain point it, it feels relieving it feels um i, I mean I, I think i think i'm okay to say that i mean you even said to me after he first showed up that i seemed completely different i seemed more at peace and i seemed more i don't know i was calmer i was a lot less angry um there's that kind of thing you you feel like there's a like somebody flushes the uh, the toilet of your soul, uh, you know it, it's that kind of feeling. It, it's a uh, there's a lyric for you. Yeah, yeah. Toilet of the soul <laughs> releases. You know, <laughs> this Friday, pick it up at Sam Goody. No, I I think it's it's very much like that. There's a there's a sort of relief feeling. So when when you got scared that time and and you jumped back and you said I don't want this. Could you feel that I don't want this, that that sort of fear or recognition or whatever that was, could you feel it in conflict with this other tranquility emotion or, or did it um, become that? Did it transfer it, it, over and yeah, transform it, it, into it? Well, it, it became a – and I'm not even sure if we've talked about that. I don't know if I even should, but the uh, there was a point where he scared me, which I don't – Again, I can't remember if we discussed it or not, and I don't think we did. But I think we did. The, uh, point, at, the point at which you stopped doing this, yeah, yeah, the point did. at which I said, you know, not, you know, yeah. I, I think it became for me. I mean, I can only speak for how it felt for me, but which was that I felt very calm, very at peace, very like this is working for me now, as opposed to being in conflict of fear, and I think. That when I erupted into that fear thing, it was almost a 
I've been fooled. You know, this is this is this is this. This is the same phenomena. This is not something different. This nothing's changed. It was all those kind of feelings. So it kind of became for that is short. I mean, admittedly short amount of time. It was like someone opened the doors to how I used to feel about it, as opposed to how I felt in the presence of this being. But could you still feel the the good vibes underneath that, trying to get back in? Or no, I felt extreme disappointment um, from him. I mean, it was very palpable. It was extreme disappointment. Like I thought we were past this type of feeling. And um, was your feeling, would you say, heightened in the same way that when I talk about, like when I was on shrooms and suddenly I felt. Uh, paranoid, and then just thinking about being paranoid made me a thousand times paranoid. <laughs> I mean, was it like that kind of effect? Um, was it just normal, everyday, emotional transition from one state to another when you're startled by something? Or well, no, there was a definite, there was a definite period of I don't know what you'd call it. I mean, uh, when I, I mean, I, I I'm just going to say that I jumped up and it went backwards, and as I went backwards. I don't want to say things went in slow motion, but I became acutely aware of a high strangeness feeling that equates to me with fear and being a loss of control. And that's that's where my fear stems from. I know that about myself at this point. I would say that... Well, when you say acute awareness, that sounds like you went into animal instinct mode and everything was heightened that way yeah everything becomes like a fine-tuned uh hdtv um and that's what everything by high strangeness when you say everything that. seems to be buzzing i mean you don't notice that around him in that way you whether or not it's not there or it's there and you just don't notice it by virtue of something that he's doing i don't know but i, so I definitely are you saying that that's your fear reaction or that that's also the high strangeness feeling I think that's part of the high strangeness too. I think the, the the notion of everything going extraordinarily sharp in vision. I mean, I wear glasses and I have horrible vision, and um, and I, I didn't have glasses on or anything like that. And I, I mean, uh, I know that uh, things were fuzzy. And then when I became extraordinarily agitated and afraid, everything just kind of honed in. The blood vessels in your eyes, you know, kind of beat and. Uh, and I think that's a part of fear reaction, but there's also sort of something that I can't put down to um, biological perception that 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 happens where the environment seems to be more alive. Like even the carpet seems to take on some sort of of, of buzzing reaction that you're almost you almost feel like you're seeing molecules buzzing together, actually making the floor hold you up. It's that kind of feeling. Um, Everything seems to be buzzing. Everything seems to be very electric and alive and moving and um, and disorienting. And it's it's that's what I call the hyper awareness, the hyper reality uh, type of feeling. That is something that we don't normally see, uh, but nonetheless probably exists around us. At least in my opinion, it it probably is that way all the time. But you're seeing it through a different altered state. Is there an altered state around him? Yes. Could I put it down to? The same sort of altered state that I've had in the past around this phenomena? No. Uh, it's much more accommodating. It's much more relaxed. It's, it's peaceful. It's tranquil. It's tranquil. But it's, it, there, is that, uh, that, there is that little nagging thing. Wow, he really does look not good. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just because it's wearing black. I mean, that's really the only reason. I mean, it's dressed like the emperor. <laughs> yeah. 
something something dark side. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, it is. I don't know. It, 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 there is the visual that is inescapable to that. Um, but when you saw the men in black, nothing, just completely human people. Oh, completely, yeah. And when you saw the lemur in upstate New York, looks like a lemur, <laughs> just an animal. Yeah, okay. yeah it's just an animal. So the reason I ask you that, Jeff, is because um, Redfern had mentioned that some people, for instance, see Bigfoot and they just see an animal, and some people see Bigfoot and they uh, feel that Bigfoot notices them and then it just sort of disappears um, into thin air. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I was just wondering if, if, if any of your seemingly solid um, encounters with even seemingly solid humans – felt like high strangeness or if they all felt like reality just to get a sense of it from, you know, your perspective. And as you can tell, it's a little of both, <laughs> right? It's not, not all that well-defined really. I mean, it, it seems solid, but uh, there is an element of high strangeness to it. But this, these latest episodes have been a little bit less so a little more calm, a little more still weird. I mean, but, but a little bit more, uh, able to focus a little bit more on my end, I suppose. Very good. And so what did you, um, what, what do you make of the contactee thing? Does it hold any intrigue for you? Does it hold any more intrigue for you since hearing Redfern's take, or is it about the same? Well, let me think. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could find interesting tidbits in anybody's past, I'm sure, uh, associations or people they might have known or any of that kind of thing. I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, he mentioned... Something about, was it uh, Van Tassel, I think, had connections with somebody from CIA and all that kind of thing. So they, you know, I agree with him that he says it's not as simple as it may seem. It may not may not seem like it's real deep. It may seem kind of, uh, I don't know, campy and hoaxy, but there's more to it than that. I agree with that. These are very interesting people, I'm sure. Damsky was an interesting guy. Sure, he, he led an interesting life, but whether or not he was in contact with beings from another planet is a whole different matter. And, and for that, I say no. I, I think all of that falls squarely into the crap category for me. Well, I have a problem with the whole had a, an affiliation with – I mean, what are these affiliations with the CIA or the FBI or whatever? I mean, my mom was good friends with the head of um, the FBI, the director of the FBI from Massachusetts for a while before uh, he moved – um, so does that mean that I have an affiliation with the FBI? You know, I mean, people would say that if they ever saw that yeah. there was some sort of, if they ever did a background check and, and saw these like connections, right. you know, they could make some deal out of it, but there's really nothing sure. to it, you know? Sure. Right. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's, it could be so, so malign as far as a, uh, association. I mean, what does that even mean? Um, I don't know. It doesn't make much of a difference to me is their overall picture of being a contactee. I don't, I agree more with what he said in terms of the message that they impart is one of peace and one of goodwill and one of getting rid of nuclear weapons and trying to make the whole world a lot more stable, I guess is the word. I agree with that. I think Meyer basically says a lot of those things that, uh, we need to stop poisoning the earth. We need to start taking care of the planet. We need to cease wars. We need not to invade this country or that. I mean, I, all of that stuff makes sense to me. It's the methodology is, you know, don't sell me peace in a flying saucer. I don't need that. Mm-hmm. But this is the 
for some of them, I guess it's the only way they could get heard. So I think it's more that than anything else. Somebody trying to put forth a better ideology than what they see out there that's available. And they do so by gaining the attention from a flying saucer story. Well, in any event, I mean, I, I found the uh, I found the contactee stuff uh, far more interesting than I thought I would, um, and I. But I really can't wait to have Nick back to talk about that clandestine government group that thinks it might yes. be all demons. Um, so, yeah, sounds really neat. Thank you, Sir Redfern, for gracing the show, and hopefully, you will grace it again real soon. Uh, now, right. let's turn our attention to uh, Emma Woods and David Jacobs, um, because I think people deserve an update on that. It was such a controversial topic uh, for which we yeah. got much praise and much uh, much maligned. <laughs> much crap, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think the overall reaction was positive, which I don't know how good or bad that is, really, uh, considering that it was only one side of the story. That's the only problem I have with it is that we, we only reacted to what we had from one side. As far as it being a one-sided story, you know, that's that's the thing that keeps coming up over and over again. People keep saying, um, you know, when's Jacob's going to give his side? Or they're asking us, did you hear from him? Did he contact the show and that sort of thing? And I guess what we can say is we can neither confirm nor deny that we have heard from David Jacobs. Right. But um, from what we do know, from any source involved, um, at least in terms of me, I'll say me. I don't know about you. Uh, I don't take back any of the things I said. I, I feel uh, pretty comfortable with with what I supposed on the show last week. With your reactions to what you heard, yeah. Well, nothing, I, I don't nothing that think... I have nothing that I have heard in the last week uh, from anybody has changed that. Because I think the kernel of the story is that no matter how you slice it, you've got a researcher who, even if he had her consent, whatever the case may be, put her under hypnosis, gave her the suggestion that she has multiple personality disorder to ward off perceived aliens purely from these instant messages and her reinforcement, her saying, oh, yeah, these, these must be aliens or, you know, whatever, whatever that rigmarole is that, that gets that story going. I mean... That's what happened, and um, and there's no denying that that's what happened. And therefore, as far as I'm concerned, everything else is superfluous. It's a problem, yeah. Well, I think the, the overarching thing that we've heard <clears throat> this week has been that she's crazy. <laughs> and I'm, I, it never ceases to amaze me to get another email that says, you guys, you know, she's crazy. Yeah. Well, I think people don't seem to understand. It doesn't matter if she is or she isn't. The point is, is what occurred, not what her state is, of which, so far, no one in the ufological community, nor the message board community, nor the podcasting community knows what her mental state is. No one's qualified to judge that. Uh, But that's all beside the point when we're talking about the bigger issue. And let's talk about methodology for a second here, because... She did tell us oh, yeah. that <laughs> let's let's talk about this. All of her let's, let's talk about this. <laughs> all of her hypnosis sessions were done over the telephone, and in fact, she has never met David Jacobs in person. So t- right. just take a moment now and let that sink in. <laughs> never met him in oh, person. Wait. All done over the phone. Yeah, uh, and furthermore, now this is a little less substantiated, I guess, just by proxy of we don't know who this Elizabeth is, but she says that he asked her. 
to also do uh, hypnosis as one of the tactics over instant message. And she didn't want to. And he wasn't thrilled with that, but he said okay. But as far as she knows, Elizabeth did do uh, hypnosis over instant message. And Elizabeth is a science fiction writer in her spare time. And this is kind of what leads Emma to believe that Elizabeth would be behind uh, all of this hybrid IM stuff. This is this is all according to Emma. It's right? all according right, to Emma. You're saying. Um, right. But what's what's obvious is that this all of her hypnosis regressions were done over the telephone. Right. And and that that is a problem to me at least. <laughs> I don't know about yeah. the rest of you, but that's a problem. I think you really have to be in the room with someone when you partake of a an operation like that. And clearly that didn't happen. And so, I did call the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, the Board of Psychology, and to find out if he is licensed in anything. And it turns out he is not. So, so he's not licensed to for any sort of therapy. Um, you know, and as far as like really us getting involved in this any further, I mean, I, I think um, we shouldn't. You know, I just think like we could spend forever trying to yeah. do this. You know, like what's the point? So unless well, trying to sort it all out. Yeah, unless yeah. Jacobs makes a statement or publicly or wants to come on the show, uh, or unless Emma wants to come on the show, or if her she's got this other guy who is remaining anonymous, who she's um, going right. to be publishing his story. If he wants to give us his name publicly, I mean, I don't. You know, it's yes. got to be public. And come on the show, then we'll do yeah. that. But I don't think that there's really, I mean, beyond that, there's not much we can do. I, I can say that UFO Watchdog has at least um, felt the pressure to take him out of the Hall of Fame for now. Uh-huh. So I think that's good. But I've got to say that this Skyler character over there is just awful. I mean, he is, besides publicly calling her insane on that message board, he has um, said, I think she's from New Zealand based on. Uh, blah, 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 from your emails. So he gives us evidence that he believes she's from New Zealand. I mean, you get the sense, the very obvious sense, that if he could out her and give her name, he would. Now, again, I don't feel like yelling again. I don't feel like calling people names anymore. It's just I'm burnt out. But this is not Uh, the behavior of somebody who should be in charge of a UFO watchdog organization. This is somebody who should uh, be let go. (laughs) From, from any of that, because that's dangerous stuff, giving away someone, you know, someone who wants to remain anonymous because you've decided to take the side of someone else uh, in something that is so clearly you haven't looked into. Uh, because, you know, there's no way this guy listened to these tapes. I mean, he probably just checked out her website or whatever he did. Um, but regardless, regardless, I mean, it's still such an open debate that they realize they have to take him out of the Hall of Fame. And so what's he doing trying to out her at the same time? I mean, that's just ridiculous. And as far as, yeah. you know, they're trying to play down the fact that, oh, UFO watchdog, it's it's not really a big deal. Well, I think it was a big deal when, when Royce Meyer was in charge. I think he actually did investigations, did he not? He did the work, yeah. Yeah, he did yeah, the work. Absolutely. So he didn't just like, I mean, sit he, by he, and he, say, well, hey, everybody, who, <laughs> who do you think belongs in the Hall of Fame and the Hall of Shame? He actually knew what was going on in the world of ufology. Well, here's the thing. He did not make the halls of fame and shame the embodiment of the site. That was not the embodiment of the site. The embodiment of the site was actually the work that he did in making phone calls, talking to people in person, 
confronting people who had never been confronted before about certain issues, such as Greer and the Woolsey letter. I mean, there's there's a good one. He actually obtained the document that said that uh, you know that, that Greer overstates his uh, his meeting with with uh, Woolsey, and and that was posted on the site. See, that's the kind of that's the kind of work that it takes to actually prove a point or to, or to be able to make a statement. And and instead, what we've gotten from that side has been, well, she's crazy. And and, and clearly, as I said before. Jacobs is not qualified to say she's crazy. Uh, we're not qualified to say she's crazy. And damn sure Schuyler and the Paracast crew are not qualified to say she's crazy. We haven't even met this woman. And it, which, which is, again, a, another reason that we brought it up, we gave our opinions, we listened to the tapes. We hope that at this point everyone else has done their homework and gone to that website, read through what she's written, listened to what she's posted, and can draw your own conclusions from there. Right now, it's all about waiting for Dr. Jacobs to make his side known. And then you can weigh one side against the other. That's how this works. Okay? Uh, the, the thing that I got really tired of hearing is that we were lynching Jacobs and all of that. We stated opinions based on what we heard. What we heard wasn't fucking good. Okay? And uh, It doesn't matter how many you're times gonna, you say that over and over again. People still... Some people, not a lot, no, but some, yeah, absolutely. don't want to hear that. They just, oh, well, yeah. why do you have your running opinion going? Well, because uh, that's the show. If, you know, we could just point to the beings, website so we have the a audio tapes. That's why. That, that's been my single biggest, like, jaw-dropping what of the week uh, is, is hearing all of this nonsense about how nobody should be saying anything. Really? Because that's how shit gets forgotten in this field. I got news for you. If you don't bring this stuff to the surface, it gets buried. It gets forgotten about, and everybody moves on. And and this is part and parcel to exactly what Lillenfeld was going over with us on this very podcast, not more than what now, two or three weeks ago, about this whole regression hypnotherapy thing. How do you think Dr. Lillenfeld would respond to, to this being done over the phone? <laughs> I mean, really? Come on. Wake up. Wake up. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's gotten to the point. And I don't mind saying this, Jeremy, right on, right on the show. I, I wrote Jeremy this week. I was so pissed off at some of the negativity, negativity that was coming out of this episode based on what we presented, which was publicly available stuff. It wasn't like we dug into anybody's private emails and stole something and posted it for everyone to see. This was publicly available data that any one person could have gone out and gotten. We brought it to our audience. We stated what we thought of it when we heard it. End of story. Okay? But now all of a sudden, we're the bad guys for doing that. I'm sorry. It's bad to report on what is out there publicly? That it has grave consequences for this field? Really? Well, then my answer is, I don't fucking need this. I don't need to be here. I don't need to be talking. I could just as easily study this on my own and not do a podcast and not share anything and just uh, just talk to Jeremy about it. And that's it. <laughs> you know, I could I could very easily do that and be a, probably a happier person. It's like I'm sitting here and I'm going over the Lillenfeld episode where he talks about regression therapy, where he talks about how dangerous this can be, how it's not a useful tool. Uh, how it changes who people are, it changes memories, 
everything that he went over in that episode. And people are still saying to me, you were a little hard on him. I think some regression data still has some merit. <laughs> and I say to myself, what I've said to Jeremy at many a conference when we encounter a lunatic, at many a, uh, you know, when we get done recording a show, <laughs> what am I doing here? Because I'm sitting here trying to, uh, I, I'm the one who got Lindenfeld on this show because I so had such disdain for regression therapy. I knew all of its pitfalls years ago. I've been talking about it publicly since a woman called me a heretic in, in Washington, D.C. for saying that regression therapy was garbage. Uh, that was clean back in, what, 1990, 91, somewhere in there. And, and it's, you get to the point where you're like, number one, is anyone really listening? Number one. Number two, do they really care about what is being said by competent, accredited professionals as opposed to UFO researchers? Your, your jaw hangs in the air at how people want to be so willfully ignorant of the real story, the real facts. And I thought that's what we were all looking for in this. So I wrote Jeremy this week and I said, you know what? I don't think this is worth me doing anymore because nobody nobody wants the, the truth of this stuff. They just want to hang on to what they've held on for all along, that all of this regression stuff is true, all the stories of hybrids and all of that's real. That's all real to them. That's part of their psyche when it comes to ufology. Uh, and I hold it in the same kind of contempt that I do any other kind of theory that doesn't seem to be panning out, a.k.a. ETH, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. It's just, it's this tried and true, we're solid, we're leaning back in our easy chair on this subject, and that's as far as we want to go. And if that's as far as people want to go, why am I going to sit and aggravate myself trying to bring different perspectives to this? Because nobody obviously wants them. And then, of course, Jeremy talked me down off the ledge. Well, because when you say <laughs> nobody... I mean, you know, and I'm just as guilty of this as you, although I think you're more, you're so more touchy about stuff like this than I am. But I'm more but, reactionary. Though. But we're yeah. both guilty, absolutely, of looking at one or two negative things and going, that's it, I'm done. Yeah. Screw these people. They don't appreciate me. And then realizing that, wait, there's uh, five or six or ten other posts saying, you know, we get it, or yeah. this is great, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so you can't really go by the one or two uh, dopes. It's true. Or even in this case, I wouldn't even say necessarily dopes. I mean, I, like, for instance, Ward, who I think was the first poster on our forum to... Who is not a dope. Who's not a dope <laughs> to question all this stuff. Oh. But he's clearly a wounded fan of Jacob's, or at least it was pretty clear to me that, that you know, we went after a, a sacred cow here, and that hurts. And yeah. so you want to make excuses for said sacred cow... Um, but I think once you like cool your heels and, and sit back and think about what you're hearing, it gets harder and harder, you know? Well, and it's, and it's not just the idea that it's, it's Dr. Jacobs. It's also that it's about regression therapy as a whole. And we're, we're going to have to, I mean, we do realize that there are people out there who are saying that they've had this experience that have no conscious memory whatsoever of the experience itself that have gained everything that they have gotten out of this subject from regression hypnotherapy done by God knows who. So therefore, 
this is what I'm calling for. We throw it all out. All of it. Throw it all out. Because we cannot separate what is possible memory from what is garbage. And therefore, when a scientist encounters that, he throws it out. It doesn't pass through the filter. It has to be discarded. We start over. Yeah, <laughs> there are that, plenty that's of not people to say that, that these memories are all yeah. wrong or all implanted. Or I mean, it's not even about that. It's about that it's such a faulty method that we can't say. And if you can't say, you throw you can't it out. Rely on. Yeah, you can't rely on it. That's correct. And, and, and there are plenty of people out there who have conscious recall of the majority of an experience. That should be enough. If there's parts that they can't remember, then there's got to be other alternative methods to doing that. Valet told me that one of the best ways he knows is just to sit and talk with someone, throw the forms away, throw the forms of, you know, uh, God, God knows what some of these forms ask you. Like, you know, what, uh, is, is there any, is there any, uh, psychological problems in your, in your family tree? What is your, your relationship to altered states? Have you messed with drugs? Uh, do you drink? You know, all of these types of things. Are you a fantasy prone personality? How about just sitting down and talking with that person and or taking them to the geological spot where they believe that an experience happened to them and relax and sit and get to know and get to talk to these people? And he said, you'd be surprised what they're able to remember after that happens. It's all part of integration. That's, that's why I believe some people can't remember things. I think it's a, it's a question of integration. It can't be integrated, so therefore they don't want to think about it. I, I believe, like Dr. Littlefield said, that there is no such thing as not remembering it because it was traumatic. I think it's a question of not wanting to address it because it was traumatic or because it scared you or because it was so outside of your, your, your sphere of reality that you can't make sense of it. And so at that point, you abandon it, push it to the side, or label it with something else. So there are other ways to get at this data rather than one that has clearly shown to be faulty that people clearly can't rely on. And so my my call out to everyone now is, is the ufological community going to take the responsible stance of saying, yes, this data is probably worthless, we can't separate it from confabulation. It's impossible. So let's start over. Let's look for some different way, some, something that at least the psychological community can get behind and say, this might be a valid way of retrieving this. This might be a valid way of dealing with this, rather than subscribing to a fantasy. Uh, that's what I would call for. And I think in doing that, you are negating the work of Bud Hopkins. You are negating the work of David Jacobs. You are negating the work of Barbara Lamb and many, many others who have a John Mack who have built this, this portrait of what this phenomena is when it interacts with an individual. That's hard for people to give up because there's been a lot built on that. And now we've realized, I hope, that you're building castles in the air for something like that. So that's what I would hope would happen out of that episode is is to know between the, between the Lil episode and the Emma Woods one, I hope that that would paint an accurate picture of what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. That it's simply not a, not a viable tool. So I think in in trying to round this little segment out, I, I think that what has to be said here is that 
a lot of people quit this because they become frustrated with the public's perception of what they said, how they said, how people will really side pick at every little thing that you say in, in an effort to somehow get a one up on you or, or something like that. I, for one, I don't, I don't know how anybody else feels about this, but I'll, I'll welcome to get email paratopia podcast at gmail.com. So starting next week, this is how it's going to be. Okay. This show is not going to address any other show. We're not reading everybody's message boards. We're going to somewhat distance ourselves from our own. We're still going to be reading it, but we're not going to be commenting as much. We want to hear more about what you have to say rather than trying to discuss these issues directly with you. We want you to talk amongst yourselves to try and work things out. And then we're going to try to, I don't know, Jeremy, like somehow interject a, a little less frequently than we have been. We will call messages from the board, yeah. uh, questions, yes. that sort of thing, and talk about it on yes. the show. And we'll answer you directly on the show and yeah. that sort of thing. Or you can email us once or again. Us. Uh, yeah, that, that's uh, Paratopia Podcast at Gmail. Dot com And I will be checking that daily and uh, we'll be grabbing questions out of that to, to read on the air and respond to. But I think that that's the um, I think that's the best way at self-preservation is to do your show. Talk about what you want to talk about, put it out there, get feedback back, read it, address it. That's going to be the that's going to be the communication, at least for me from now on, because frankly, the way we've been doing it is just an effort and frustration and futility for me. I, I, I'm not interested in uh, in going back and forth with uh, another show, another person. That's it. I mean, I, I think that's where I leave it with this. Is well, that, and uh, so the other part of this is if you hear someone trash-talking us or whatever, just don't tell us. Yeah, we're not listening. <laughs> we don't, we I'm don't not, care. We don't At this care. point out, we don't care. No. Uh, I think that we've made a mistake in this show by trying to address all of those uh, those people at different times and different places. And 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 again, like I said at the very beginning of this show, uh, uh, what uh, over a year now, this show is not gauged in con- confrontation with personalities, other shows, listeners, any of that. This is about getting at this subject and trying to find different ways to approach it, different viewpoints to view it from. I'm sick of personalities. I'm sick of all the nonsense. And uh, and from here on out, we're just we're not dealing with it. We're not talking about it. We don't want to hear about it. We're going to do our show. Uh, if you want to come along for the ride, great. And you want to talk about the subject rather than the personalities, who said what, who did what to whom, great. Past that, we're doing the show and we're talking about the subject. Uh, Everybody else can get left behind as far as I'm concerned. All of that said, I'd like to welcome Don Ecker to my list of – my short list of people I do impressions of. Uh, (laughs) That's all next week. For this Uh, week, well, I'm sorry. I feel like I do need to address this. Like why (sighs) – Don Ecker – and I know that by drawing attention to this, of course, the risk is that you're going to then want to go and listen to his show and, oh, what did he say and all that? And don't ask me. I don't – because A, I don't – he doesn't have it online at least yet. Um, but B, I just don't care to help you listen to his trash. Uh, the dude, I don't, I guess I can have a thousand conspiracy theories as to why he decided to go after me or after us. 
perhaps he was upset about the Zorgi Awards. <laughs> but even saying that yeah, draws maybe. attention to the Zorgi Awards. And if you're going, what's a Zorgi Award? It's nothing. It's something that Paul Kimball invented. Um, there's no real award. It's just a thing he does every year. But, um, you know, Ecker thinks it's the Oscars of ufology. He has said that on his website. And uh, at some point I said publicly uh, on our message board, hey, why is his podcast in there for 2009 when he didn't do any live shows in 2009? Uh, and I, So it's possible that Ecker, because he's such a hothead, heard that and thought it's time to go to war with Vaney or something petty like that. I don't know. I do know that he's had it out for me ever since I started writing at UFO Magazine because, like I said in the skit, uh, you know, he's a right winger and I did a, I said a lefty thing or I actually I thought it was an obvious thing that Bush stole an election. I think everybody knows that at this point, but whatever. Oh. And for some reason, uh, that was it. He, he was set off and hated me and, you know, was calling me unpatriotic behind my back and all that. But that was years ago and I have not ever, I don't think I've ever said anything publicly about him, like in a bad light. If I have, I don't, I don't recall it. But I don't think I have. I mean, I'd certainly never said anything. Maybe I wrote something. I don't know. I don't think so. Because I've always sort of just thought, well, okay, he's a researcher. And he's the guy I respect as, you know, one of the owners of UFO Magazine. And I've seen him on TV a million times and all this sort of stuff. But he decided to really attack me on his show and call me a hack and a troll and all of this sort of stuff. Which I don't actually mind. Um, go, go ahead and do that. But... At one point, he says something to the effect of, um, after talking about civility, how, how there needs to be more civility in the world, says that somebody needs to kick my ass, kick his ass between his ears. And I, I think that um, that kind of talk is dangerous because you're on a radio show. It might even be illegal. Um, I mean, I, I could probably just call the authorities on you, Don, because you're inciting your fan base to come after me. But uh, that's not my style, so instead you get you get the impression, and you get to stew in your own juices over that. Um, but this kind of, like, you know, we, we did a, a sketch. It was all about doing this sketch about Zachariah Sitchin, who is a thousand years old and probably never heard it, because there's I can't imagine Zachariah Sitchin listening to my podcast, you know, my Culture of Contact podcast. Right. I just don't think that that is happening. Uh, in any event, the joke... Um, was completely tasteless and all that. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, I'm going to say that f for for my money, that's the kind of humor I like. I like dangerous humor. I you know sometimes I even like disgusting humor. Um, yes. And I get in, in the end, yeah. And the answer to that to me is tough shit. You're a celebrity, uh, and you get to take your lumps. That's tough shit. That doesn't make me a bad guy, Don. That doesn't. That doesn't make me a hack and a troll. That doesn't mean that I deserve to be beaten up. That doesn't mean that by the time this airs, I should, you know, walk out my door and have a little laser light pointed pointed at me from a, a sniper rifle because I did an impression of you. I mean, just fucking grow up. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that's like the middle school, you know, bully mentality that has to be done away with uh, if we're ever going to get anywhere in this field. Um, and another... Not Jeff, uh, but another podcast friend, let's say, um, had a good point about you, Don, which is you would expect someone like you to help foster the new guys, not be petty, not be jealous, not cause fights, not go after people. 
because you've been in this for so long, you would think that you would want to foster good new voices in this to, to carry on the struggle and try to figure this shit out. I mean, what are you in this for? Are you in this just to make a name for yourself off other people? Are you in this to investigate UFOs? Are you in this to pick a fight? I mean, are, what are people in this for? Not just you, but anybody. I mean, this is something that we've asked ourselves, and we continue to ask ourselves, all the time. What are we in this for? Um, it, it can't just be about, you know, East Coast, West Coast, ha-ha, rapper wars. You know, it's just, it's ridiculous. Or, back in my day, we used to do it this way. Well, that's great. And in my day, we do it this way. And that doesn't make either of us right or wrong. It just is the way it is. Because that's what happens when societies grow and people grow and things get different. It's just the way shit is. Well, can I say something here? Go ahead. I think that what uh, Don got a buck up his ass about was the uh, the Zachariah thing regarding uh, Mr. Sitchin's wife uh, passing away. I think that was where he had a big issue. And I got to say... Yeah, yeah. Is it tasteless humor? Absolutely. Well, hold on and, a second. I, I got to set this up because I don't think people know what the hell we're even talking about at this point. I mean, if we're going to go into well, it, well, ex- explain, explain. I threw a thing. I threw a, the culture. This is two years ago. So somebody sent Don. <laughs> yeah. Somebody sent Don Ecker clips of this show, knowing that he's friends with Zachariah Sitchin. So either Don was out for my blood and was like, "We've got to get something on this guy," <laughs> and the best they could come up with was a skit that he's offended by, a comedy skit. Right. Or somebody just sent it to him to incite his wrath on me. Uh, one way or the other, this is what's going down. Uh, I wanted Zachariah Sitchin to speak at the Culture of Contact. He sent me, he left me a voicemail saying, uh, unfortunately that weekend, words to the effect of, uh, it's the anniversary of my wife's death, so I don't think I'll be in any shape to, to do that. And as I'm listening to this message, I'm going, oh, yeah, God, that's awful, just like anyone else would. I'd be, you know, I was like, oh, wow. And the next thing out of his mouth is, and also, you made no mention of money, uh, what I would be paid, so I don't think I can do it. And then, of course, I immediately went, what? And in my right. head, I was like, if I were to call him up or write to him, essentially, it would be to say, well, you know, how much money would it take for you to forget about your dead wife for the weekend? I mean, to me, that's what it sounded like. And that became the joke of it. Now, whether he meant it that way or not, to me, is irrelevant because the joke of it is there. And now some of you are listening to that and you're going, ha that's hysterical. You know, and some of you would listen to that and you'd go, wow, that's completely awful. Jeremy, you should be ashamed of yourself. What an asshole. Uh, but to me, those right. are just reactions that you can have that are that are neither right nor wrong. They're just they just are what they are. You know what I mean? I don't think you're a bad person for having either reaction to me. Uh, making a well, joke about it. And well, then it became this impression that, that you used to do yeah. that was, to me, freaking hysterical. Um, and, and in actual... Well, and it became a running joke. It became you know, our running that joke. That became the running joke between both of us. Right. You know, not, it had nothing to do with Zach Ryan at all. Right. At that point, it, it just snowballs into this own would joke. Say to me, you would say to me something like, yes, you would say something to me like, can I come down this weekend? I would say, well, I don't know, how much are you going to pay me? Uh, and I don't know because you know this is the anniversary of my my wife's death. I mean that just became like the running joke because it it, you know the other thing that I don't think Don got it it did sound probably not a lot of people got was that in that episode I mean Jeff left me a ton of voicemail messages and I just played them all and and it just the joke of it was 
huh, I got another call. I wonder who this is going to be. And then it's Zachariah Sitchin. And another and another and another. And it happens so many times that the joke is, it becomes this meta thing where now you as the audience member are completely sick of hearing this. And you're like, Vaney, what, you know, this sucks. So if, but if you don't turn it off, if you're not like, wow, this is completely boring at this point, and you keep listening, then the joke becomes, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something about, oh, well, yeah, you know, I guess that never, that didn't matter in the first place. Uh, sorry, I wasted everybody's time. So then the joke is on the audience for having sat through, you know, 8,000 minutes of, of these answering machine messages. Um, so, I mean, you know, but I'm not asking a humorless person to understand humor. I'm just asking him to not uh, send his audience of three uh, to kick my ass. <laughs> is, that, is that so much to ask? Yeah, I can understand that. I think it's a little over the top. But uh, I will say that I do understand that it's tasteless humor and and certainly the i don't know how to exp- i don't know how to explain it other than to say it became our running joke and we thought it was ridiculous and so it became our running joke that I, that somehow made it on the air because jeremy thought it was hysterical and so he put it on there it wasn't like it was a planned deal uh, but either way i'll 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 meddle up here and say yeah I, I formally apologize if that hurt anyone's feelings or if that made light of anything. I'm sure it, it did make light. And I didn't mean for it to be taken as the way that it was meaning to make light of someone's death or the grief of a husband of a wife. That, no, of that really had nothing to do with it. I mean, that is not me. That is not who I would be. Uh, but it became a running joke just strictly of the situation, not necessarily the people involved, if that makes any sense at all. Um, so either way, any way anyone took it, I formally apologize in, in, in the in the way that that offended some people. Yeah, I don't. So well, Jeremy does, <laughs> but I do. <laughs> Jeff's a better person than I am, and uh... well, I mean, I can understand it to a degree, but I think the notion of calling some for somebody's you know uh, asked to be worn as a necklace on your show is a little bit much. I mean, you can see what they did to Dimebag Daryl when somebody, uh, one of his ex-singers, said in a, uh, a magazine, uh, so he should be beaten severely <laughs> for breaking up Pantera. Right. And they killed him on stage. I mean, that kind of stuff, shit, that shit happens. And I think it's uh, ridiculously irresponsible to call for someone to be physically harmed because of some stupid joke somebody made on a goddamn podcast. Two That's years ago. Beyond the pale. Two years ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's just Nothing like ridiculous. stirring the pot. And, and, hey, but, you know, it's kind of an honor. I mean, if that's the most dirt that you can find on me, great. That should tell you something. <laughs> Actually, that should tell you something about my character. Because I'm a guy who makes a lot of claims, right? And if the worst you, if the worst you got is a comedy skit, <laughs> I must be doing something right. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? <laughs> uh so, Don, you can. I, I, I just want to say you can respond however you want. I don't give a shit. Um, no, nobody tell me. Nobody email me. Be like, did you hear what Don said? He said people should come after you with machete this time. I mean, I don't care. Um, uh, I, I, I will make this official statement since this is our last caring about. Yeah, this and, and it will be. Don, <laughs> and it will uh, be. Don Ecker, go fuck yourself. That's that's okay. my final statement on Don Ecker. You can go right. fuck yourself. Well, I will say. Uh, that uh, I always had a huge amount of respect for him over the years. And uh, and unfortunately, I've seen that dwindle just in the past couple, I would say. And um, and that, for me at least, and when I read his website about all of his famous firsts, 
and one of them being the STS-48 film that came out from NASA that was recorded live on NASA TV by Donald Ratch, who lived in Maryland. And Don made a, a big point of saying that he was the guy who broke that story. And Don wasn't the one who broke the story. It was Don Ratch who broke that story. Don just picked it up and ran with it. And, of course, him being the, the media guy, um, I guess in a media sense, he figures he broke the story. But Don never seems to get credit for that find. And when I when I said something to Don on his on his his uh, message board that was attached to his blog that hey didn't Don Ratch find that Don <laughs> then he says yes and I always credit Don with that then why didn't you write there so you know <laughs> it's it's you know it's just one of those things and I and I, I saw that and then, and there's some other stuff that just you know, I'm not going to get into who cares I'm I'm not into it it's it just I. I really had a lot of respect for him years ago, and, and it's a shame to see what it's gotten to. But either way you cut it, um, and I'm going to uh, – we're going to hold each other to this, Jeremy, that from now on we just do our damn show and forget everything else. I mean, that's that's really the way to get things done. That's the way to ignore the trends. That's the way to ignore everything else. And I think to be able to do this in an objective way and, and to bring these new things in – uh, is to sure keep yourself informed of what's going on in ufology, but not to focus on what's going on in ufology and what people are saying about you and I. Right. I don't care what they say anymore. I, I really don't care because this has never been about everybody else. I mean, really, we're we're doing this podcast because we think it's well. It is fun to do. It's fun to talk to people in the field and outside the field. It's fun to bring new ideas in. That's what it's about. The minute that it ceases to be interesting and entertaining for people, we're done. And you know, and this week with this single show, or last week with that single show, you know, I really questioned like what do people want out of this? And so I think the best thing to do is just say, if you want to come along for this ride, great. If you don't, that's great too. But we're not going to be entertaining any more of this nonsense anymore. This is not what this is about. So uh, it's kind of like my last word on it. So everybody now it's open season on us, I suppose, because we won't be responding to any of it. I think by and large that our show will probably grow because of that. <laughs> well, know, a lot of people I, say I, on our forum, gee, I wish you guys would would stop, stop with that stuff yeah. and, and, and all that. And it's like, all right. <laughs> it's easy to say that. <laughs> yeah, it's easy it, to You know it what? It, it's, it's easy to say that when it's not you. Right. But when it is you – and you, and you care about what people think of you, especially in this field where it's so uh, it's so dog eat dog. It's so much infighting, uh, and it's been that way for years. I mean, it's been that way ever since I've been in it. It's been infight after infight after upset after upset. And I, I recently said to Jeremy, I said, you know, one of the reasons that I uh uh uh, uh or I stammer and stutter, which Jeremy probably edits out to my saving grace, but Part of the reason I do that is because I really do feel like there are certain people out there who are just waiting for the right, or I'd say the wrong vernacular to come out, or the wrong way to, that you could take something I say in two different ways and then spin it in a certain way and say, well, he said this. How about that? Wow. And, and so I'm very careful about what I say. You know what? Anymore, I don't care. I don't care what people say. If people aren't smart enough to figure out that, for instance, this week, uh, I got an email from a guy started out a very pleasant conversation about the Emma Woods episode. And then it got into 
me saying that hybrid IMs were ridiculous. And his argument was, well, all of this is weird and ridiculous. So is it completely out of the realm that this could happen? No, it's not. And if you've been listening to this show and you'd listen to everything I've said for a year now, you'd know that. But you didn't. So you don't. So therefore, he took it as, I know the alien mind, and you better qualify that statement. Came after me with that knife. So it's like, I I listen to that and I go, is this really worth it? (laughs) Is this really worth it? If somebody doesn't know by now that we are the ones who pretty much brought out people like George Hansen to say that this stuff is weirder than it's supposed, and it's meant to do that, it means to do that, the rallying cry of the paranormal is, Make him look like a nut, right? Everybody remember that? Well, that's what it is. So no, of course it's not out of the realm that something like that could happen. That's not what I meant. What I meant was the action that was taken because of an anonymous communication online was a little extreme, in my opinion. It's a lot extreme. That's what I meant. <laughs> it was very yes. extreme. Yes. And this, well, I think this... you know what I mean when I say a little extreme. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, the thing that really bothers me is, and it comes up now and then, is, well, but you guys uh, talk about your crazy stuff, and that, Jerry, you stick a finger up your ass right. to activate a chakra, or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> right. we're just yeah. supposed to believe you, so why is that any less crazy than I am's? I mean, if, really, if if you don't see the difference between one person saying, this is my experience, um, and another person saying, I have a fear of these instant messages I'm getting that have nothing to do with anything, you don't see that difference, then I can't help you. And it's really, it's actually, it's insulting to me. I mean, that's the thing that makes me want to go, what are we doing here? Because then it's like, well, gee, if you're a a fan of the show and you're a fan of me, I mean, uh, what are you in this for? Are you in this to be just entertained by our crazy stories and therefore we should support other people who have crazy stories that are in a completely other category of crazy uh, or, right. you know, do, do I, and I think I said this in, in one of the initial shows, you know, I've certainly said this in culture contact. Am I supposed to just yield my sense of critical judgment because I have strange experiences happen to me. Therefore I'm a complete hypocrite when, when I call crazy, right. crazy, or when I call wrong, wrong. I mean, am I not, am I supposed to just pretend that I don't have these, these capabilities because I've got my own crazy stories. No, if these are apple and oranges of crazy. And, and and what disappoints me about that is I guess I wrongly suppose that I think people should be intelligent enough to know that. Yeah. And that's, that's what, that's what ultimately depressed me this point this week of saying, I think I'm done with this because and I, I don't mean just done with the show. I mean, done with this subject, done with, any notion of discussing it publicly done with any of it. It's just really, it just really became that. And then I thought to myself, well, you know what? My parents didn't raise a quitter and um, the, the best, there's a different course of action to take, which is to not entertain those kind of people who just want to get at you to get at you. Because I think, but why do they, why do they want to email saying, you know, why do they want to Jeff? Uh, be, well, I've got, why do people you know, who are ufologists because you have want to, to get you? Why are people who are bloggers <laughs> in the blogosphere want to get you? Why are listeners who presumably listen and like to and like the show 
Why do they want to get you? I mean, all of these people, it's like, what are you concentrating on? Because I think that ultimately you could break ufology. I mean, and, and all this is strictly from my own experience and observation is that I think you can break ufology into three sections. The UFO interested public, if we want to call it the field, if we want to call it the community, whatever you want to call it. You've got the fringe element, which is the people that you just listen to on a message board and you go, man, they're whacked out. You've got the second ones, which are the blood sport people, the people who want to out this one or that one, shoot the fish in the barrel. And you've got their fans who enjoy watching them shoot the fish in the barrel because the fish in the barrel are, are so ridiculous and such easy targets that you're not really accomplish anything by policing the field for them. And then you've got the people who genuinely care about this field and, and genuinely care about what's going on. And unfortunately, category number three are the minority. And I believe that. And anybody can take me to task on that in, in emails. Paratopiapodcast at gmail.com. Take me to task at that. Prove me wrong in that. And so I think when you've got that very last, you've got that category two being the blood sport, category three being the genuine people who care about this and really want to learn something. I think often the blood sport people tend to intermix with the people who are serious. And therefore, in order to make their mark, they feel the need to take someone else out or down. I could use any number of, of, of examples of this that I've seen over the years, but I'm not going to because that's just going to start another firestorm, and I'm, I'm not doing that. But I've seen that over and over and over, that the way to elevate yourself in this field is to denigrate someone else's work. We talked about Don Ecker. I don't denigrate his work at all. I think the work that he's done in this has been great. But I think that I would categorize, categorize Don as being in that blood sport area to a certain point or to a large extent because he said that's why he quit because there were so many goofballs and it was just so ridiculous and he got mad and he quit. And no one, no one can blame him for that. I certainly don't blame him for that. But that's how it breaks down. And so for certain people, they feel an elevation of their own ego – to bust on someone who's talking about this publicly, who is walking the tightrope every week, because that somehow makes them feel better about their own standing in this field or how they perceive themselves in this field. If they win an argument with Jeremy Vanny, man, feather in my cap, I showed him. Ha ha. That it's I mean, I, I hate to sound make it sound like it's so juvenile like that, but really it comes down to that very simple aspect that it's one upmanship. It is I want and need to be right. And, you know, I'm sure we're all guilty of that at some point or another. But ultimately, again, everybody needs to take a huge step back and look at why do we like seeing people torn apart in this field? Why? Why do we address people that clearly have no credibility and point that out to everybody and then stick a feather in our cap like that means something? Because it doesn't. Everyone already knows this. The people that don't know it have bigger problems than belief in that figure. That's it. The rest of us can move on from there. If the rest of them want to go and, uh, and, and launch the chariot and drag the corpse around the, 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 the Colosseum, let them do it. It's not doing anything for this field. This phenomena continues to go on completely unabated from that argument. That means nothing to this enigma. Nothing. And so... You either focus on what's important, which is the subject, or you focus on the field, which is not. 
It's clearly shown that to us in 60-plus years, where we've got a handful of people that have actually done something meaningful. Does anybody not see that point? We've got a handful. You know, Haynes, Maccabee, Heineck, uh, Valet. I mean, just to name a few in that, in that handful that have actually done something and brought something to this that no one had ever done before. You know, I'd rather try to at least honor their sacrifices and try to, 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 to push something new out than to focus on what everybody's problem is with me or with how I speak or with what my accent sounds like. Fuck you people. I'm done with that. I'm moving on from here, and it's going to be about the subject. Past that, I'm not talking or entertaining anything about personalities. This is it. Done. Over with. Jeremy. <laughs> is that your new catchphrase now? Yes. <laughs> Catch me off guard with that. Um, sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean, right? I mean, this, this is the way it should be. I mean, this is what... This is what 90% of this field should do. If you take all that venomous crap and all of that anger and all of that drive that you've got to go hunt down, I learned my lesson. I mean, God knows, I chased after the fire case for a year and a half before I realized, what am I doing? Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the fact. I learned my lesson. Uh, and a hell of a way to learn, I might add, but you learn your lesson. And, um, and you find out this is not worth entertaining. This is I could be putting this and funneling this effort into many other different avenues pertaining to this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I would encourage everyone to do. And admittedly, I think that uh, that that the Emma Woods episode uh, stirred up a lot of anger and uh, and resentment from some people that may have been fans. But again, don't hang. David Jacobs from the big oak tree, like, like is being called for on so many message boards. We haven't even heard his side yet. You don't know anything yet. We gave our opinions on what we heard from Emma. So when we hear from Jacobs, then we'll do that. And and everybody can let their chips fall where they may. You can, you can go whatever direction you want. No one's going to think less of you for it. That's your choice. We're moving on from here. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I think that's the most productive way forward. And I think ultimately, Jeremy, that's what's going to make us happy doing this. And if we're happy doing it and we're engaged in doing it, it's going to equate to better shows for people. And that's that's going to be like our our most important contribution that we can give to this, ultimately. Amen, Brother Ritzman. Let me get out of this pulpit. <laughs> <laughs>